On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Doc Fall. I know him as Doc. I think on his records, he's Dale Fall. I think he's also known as Brian in some other states, but we won't talk about those uh, outstanding warrants. He was the lead singer of Dead Vampires and probably still is. And he also, um, after this very, I think, progressive, trend-setting horror rock band in Seattle, after they made a splash, he he, uh, put out a solo album called, drumroll please, Look What the Devil Made Me Do, which I really, really like. And I think he has been able to transcend horror rock, punk, rockabilly, kind of cross genres. And also just, I think, has a lot of opinions on a lot of things. So we're going to talk about his past, his future, and I just want to really pick his brain on just the state of the art of music and why we should still care about it. So welcome to the show, Doc. Thanks for having me. And it's funny you mentioned all my names on this show because, you know, what's really funny is when you get into a room with people who know me by one of those names, they're like, hey, Brian, why are they calling you Dale? Who's this doc guy, by the way? And why are they doing that? <laughs> Basically, well, I failed at my name. I, I don't know that if there's anybody that's ever done that in the history of the world. You know, you're given a name. How can you screw that up? I did. <laughs> well, to me, you're like P. Diddy. You know, one year you're Puff Daddy, then you're Sean Combs or Sean Puffy Combs. And, and so I, basically you should be a rapper. Yeah, I should have. I've, I missed my calling. I, you know, I should have crunked it up instead of putting makeup on my face and gluing prosthetics at the weird hours and sleazy clubs. <laughs> and I well, I want to get a lot of sleazy club stories out of you tonight. Because you know what? I have oodles. You know, I've been doing this podcast, and I love it, and I kind of bend over backwards to be respectful of people, but I never really, you know, uh, push people for the seedy stories, and I just have this sense, tonight things are going to change, and like the dam's going to burst, I can just pump you for sleazy nightclub stories. Hmm. This is a R-rated, yes. <laughs> this is a rated oh, R podcast. Oh, please me! Second graders are you know hosting R-rated podcasts now. We're like, to them, we're like Disney. Okay. I I don't think you know. I don't want to let you down. I don't think my stories you know even can possibly come close to the stories that we've all heard of from role yesteryear oh but yeah, yeah but you definitely when you're in a band like i was in you know something that i would like to call budget rock at best you find yourself in a community where everybody's just doing their best with what they have which is basically nothing <laughs> so you get a lot of peddling and you get a lot of uh um vagabond kind of you know this uh kind of a people just trying to sell you on an idea and you buy it because you're trying to you know fulfill your idea of what your band should be and it yeah it turns into i wouldn't say you know there's been definitely sleazy situations 
executions, but definitely character building is probably the best two words I could come up with in all of that. That I will accept character building because the way I'd like our, our conversation to go and, you know, you've got a lot of credits and, you know, we're going to talk about more about your life and it's not just music, but, you know, anyone who is creative has a life before music, after music and, you know, during all this. And I think sometimes what you're doing to support your art is just as interesting as your art. So I definitely want to touch on that. But also, you know, you had abandoned Seattle, which was, you know, the um, ground zero of grunge rock in the early 90s. And you kind of came out of that. And, you know, for me, and I'm a little bit older than you, which I was shocked when I learned that. I thought for sure you were much older than me. This is where you're supposed to chuckle. <laughs> but I, you know, one thing I want to get into, and I kind of decided this last minute is, you know, to know how, you know, the post grunge movement inspired you and just being in Seattle, you know, in the, during the wreckage of grunge rock, which I look back now, very sentimental. And I'm shocked to think some of this stuff is 30 years ago. That just, yeah. I, that just boggles my mind because so much of that still feels so fresh. And just to, you know, you, when you first came out with dead vampires and doing your own thing, you know, just to know what kind of mark you wanted to put out there, you know, what kind of mark did you want to make as a musician, as an artist on the world? Well, I moved up to Seattle in 1991, and that's when this whole thing took off. But I was 14 at the time, mind you. You say so you are younger than me. I hate you. Go I'm, on. I'm very young. I'm going to live forever. I'm a vampire. <laughs> um, stupidest joke I've ever said right there. Anyways, uh, 91, I was up here, and I missed that whole thing. I was 14. It was happening in my backyard. I was still watching MTV and listening to Megadeth and getting stoned in my bedroom. You know, it was just that was where I was at. I didn't realize what that whole scene was until way later in life, which was probably 10 to 12 years later when I was a sound engineer in Seattle, working in the clubs. And you you kind of, you know, the the leftovers from the grunge scene are still there. And I kind of, you know, kind of got I got to relive that through those stories. I was never really a part of that from, you know, nine from the early late eighties until like mid nineties when Hootie and the blowfish came in and screwed everything up. And, um, Hootie and the blowfish. I, I, I blame him for driving a stake into the heart of rock and roll. <laughs> you know, watered down grunge and what kind of evolved in the nineties. You know, my whole take on this is when, the girl bands on the Disney Channel started, you know, rocking as hard as uh, Soundgarden. Then things yeah. got a little weird. It did. It, it was like a, it was kind of like a it was kind of like this Kmart cowboy version of rock and roll that kind of filtered into the late 90s. But in the late 90s and early 2000s is when I actually started frequenting the clubs in Seattle. I was in the Navy from 95 to 
99. So I missed a chunk of two years there. I was out sailing the seven seas. But uh, once I came back, you know, I had a lot of mutual friends from high school. Zach was one of them. And he was the guitar player of Dead Vampires. And, you know, we went to a lot of shows together. And he was playing in a lot of local garage rock bands. And that was pretty much my experience with live music in Seattle. That was the genesis for me personally. It Once the grunge thing or whatever that was was over, you had a cornucopia of garage rock bands that were very powerful. Bands like Zeke, bands like The Heart Attacks, um, the, the Catheters, which I believe actually were on the Sub Pop label. But these were bands that are actually, I was going to see live and they were very energetic and it was nothing like the grunge or what everybody had an idea of what grunge was but i didn't start playing in a band and mind you around 2001 i had become a sound engineer so i was starting to see what i basically saw was that the whole i the whole rock and roll dream of that idea of like being discovered in a bar and being discovered by some, you know, sleazy record producer that was going to take you around the world and you were going to sell albums. I was seeing the dying breath of that and realizing that that wasn't going to exist ever again. There wasn't going to be some, you Mm -hmm. know, fairy godmother of rock and roll that was going to change your life. Cause that was what I was programmed to believe as, you know, a 14 year old in the early nineties, I was thinking, you know, I was watching movies like the doors and I was a child during the eighties glam rock, you know, (laughs) explosion. And that was, you know, my idea of heaven. And that's kind of how that was the story that I was sold, you know, through my upbringing, as far as, you know, diving and falling in love with rock and roll. It's like you find five friends, you spend a few years sucking together, and then you write a song, you play the club, somebody says you're great. And, you know, the rest is, you know, history. You know, I grew up with that very feeble, <laughs> you know, idea of what. Well, in the late 80s, early 90s in Seattle, you're right. They were just buying up Seattle bands left and right. But yeah, by the time you like hit the, the last scene. last time that ever happened. Right. But like in the, by the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, were the, was the Crocodile Cafe still a big place? Like, Moe's, Moe Rockin' Cafe? What were the venues you were playing and, and you were going to? By the time I got into it, and this was 2004, I was a late bloomer. There was a lot in... I was going around and, you know, like I said, sound, I was a sound engineer. And there was a lot of just, you know, pubs. Basically, you know, just pubs with a, you know, a, a sound system that may as well have been a pair of headphones snapped in half and taped to the wall. And there was always a loud, aggressive punk band in them. There was ban- uh, places like uh, before it was the Fun House. It was called Zach's. Or no, Zach's was down in a. No, no. Yeah, Zach's. Zach's Tavern. Yeah. Um. And there was places like industrial coffee and places like the, the sit and spin was a larger club, but there was a lot of these places. There was Gibson's right down there by the more, uh, the more theater. And these were, just I remember like, Gibson's. Yeah. 
yeah, that these were these real, you know, just kind of lo-fi places where they would let bands play. And the Funhouse has a lot of sentimental value because a lot of bands got their start there. It was Zach's before, and then Brian Foss took over, and it became the Funhouse. And that is, you know, a lot of people hold that place in high regard, and Brian for because he, you know, you want to talk about, you know, sleazy clubs and, you know, getting screwed over by, you know, the guy running the door or the guy running the club. Brian Foss was the opposite of all of that. He made sure all those bands were paid. He made sure that everybody was there, had a good time. And that was, a, you know, a different experience than what you were used to. Down where they might have a pay-to-play practice, which among bands, some bands were against that, you know. The promoter of the show gives you so many tickets to sell, and you have to give a percentage of those tickets, uh, the money you've made off those tickets back, which, you know, that's business as usual. I'm sure all bands have dealt with some form of that on their way up, but there's a lot of bands that refuse to be a part of something like that. They thought that was completely wrong. Well, let's talk about the Fun House, which was this... You know, Seattle's premier punk rock nightclub is across the street from the Seattle Center. For people who don't know, the Seattle Center is that place with the Space Needle, you know, you know, the epicenter of Seattle. And they made a great um, documentary about the Fun House because I think they had to close because they were going to, like, tear it down and build condos or raising the bar because, you know, the gentrification of Seattle and then, thank goodness, you know, they kind of went to another venue with El Corazon. But so you were kind of part of that at the tail end. But what kind of has put you on the map lately is a documentary called Spanky Was a Punk Rocker, which yes. touches upon uh, the drummer of Dead Vampires. And you appear in this. I do. Probably a little too briefly. We need a lot more doc in this documentary. I would, but I know. I mean, it, that's, it says so. It says so in the, uh, the 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 genre of the film. It's a documentary. Exactly. Needs to be more. But I think uh, what's no, so cool you. about this is now that people can make these kind of low budget, kind of niche documentaries. You know, not everything has to be an Academy Award, you know, Hollywood documentary, but in these niche documentaries, we're preserving a lot of this band history. And I think we're at this stage where bands kind of have to fight for their history. There's so many bands, there's so many good bands, and there's such a glut. But if you want to be remembered, you kind of have to grab it by the horns and say, look, this is what we did, and this is my experience, and this was important to me. So I, I want to know from I want to know from you. You know how important is it for you to preserve your history as you know the creator or part of, not the, just the creator, but um, an innovator and the lead singer of this amazingly cool band called Dead Vampires. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a phrase on a podcast of yours that I listened to, and you said, you know, you put your heart and soul into something, you put you know, all this effort, and then you release it, and it's instantly forgotten. Mm -hmm. Instantly yeah. forgotten. That 
is so true of the majority of the work I've done since Dead Vampires. It's kind of what it's like. It is so important that the attention span, I, I don't know how to do it anymore. I mean, back then it was almost pre social media. Yeah. And we're, believe that social media definitely helps i mean everybody's preserving their legacy on social media with pictures music postings what have you but there's something about for me personally i feel that it's kind of taken the soul out of the interest i think it becomes less valuable on social media people getting excited about you know a band or music it's like you try you present something original and my experience so far is it is instantly forgotten. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't register. And a lot of that has to do with age. I was a lot younger in Dead Vampires. And not to mention in Dead Vampires, I had a fire to take over the world in that band. I knew I saw Dead Vampires when it was an instrumental band. And it was before Zach was even in the band. It was his birthday party at the fun house and it, dead vampires was just a keyboard, a drummer and theremin. And it was one of the most unique things I had seen. And this is after about three years of being a sound engineer and being a sound engineer in a club, especially you kind of get jaded. You kind of see everything, you know, you, you just kind of get burned out on everything at that time. Most mm -hmm. bands sounded like radio head or tool. And that was it. <laughs> everybody wanted to be Radiohead or they wanted to be Tool and that was kind of the only two things that I was hearing that was that, a little limited it was pretty limited I mean I'm sure I'm generalizing here but at the end of the day when I think back about that period and mixing in the clubs all the original bands were kind of in those veins and then well you let's see go the, back then to the Spanky yeah, Spanky and Chainsaw and so you know, you got these two guys that wanted, you know, a little more at first. You know, I know Spanky was very influenced by, like, Guar. You know, the big costume horror rock bands and Kiss. Outside. But also with a little bit of electronica. And you were talking about, you know, Chainsaw and the Theremin. And they also wanted to, you know, be kind of almost like a bold, out and proud, you know, gay band. Yeah, and that's what and, it was. I mean, at the time when I first saw Dead Vampires, I was you know, I was never under the impression that it was you know like you know gay. I, I didn't know that at all, um, and wouldn't it wouldn't have changed my opinion either way. I I just thought they were unique and they were awesome to watch, and it was this really unique thing that I was experiencing. And then a month later, Zach gives me a phone call and says, "Hey, I, what are you doing musically these days?" You know, he was in a horror rock band called Graveyard Shift that I was tapped on the shoulder to sing. But at the time, I wasn't in the headspace to do that. And I recorded their first album instead. And they actually went on to have a pretty cool cult following in the psychobilly community. And that's, you know, where me and Zach left off. And then he had since joined Dead Vampires two years later. And he asked me if I wanted to sing and I said, give me a day to think about it. And I thought long and hard. And at that time I had tried to play with other bands. Like I said, 
you had Radiohead, you had Tool. That was kind of the two choices in all the bands that I was trying at the time. And me, I'm a very theatrical guy. I like shows. I like flair. I like outlandish outrageousness. I, I think that's a show more. And the more I thought about being in this band, the more and more it sounded like the best idea I was going to make in my life. Well, the thing about the theatrics, you know, Spanky already was, you know, Count Spankula, the vampire, and Chainsaw was the bunny. And you embraced a look even more so than the others. Maybe they were more masks. You got into prosthetics. You were gluing things onto your face. I mean, you were fully committed to this look. Yeah, I was, I like I said, I... I joined the band. I, I I went to a rehearsal up in Spanky's Castle, Spanky and Chainsaw's Castle. I always called it the castle because it was they lived in a place called Mile High Hill, and they lived in this really nice house up on the hill. Was and, this on uh, Lake City? This was out in Kenmore Lake City area. Oh, Kenmore. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Kenmore, yeah. Juanita Drive. Yeah, that whole area. Anyways, I, I met him, and... You know, Spanky right from the get-go. He opens the gate to his castle and says, it's Docula. You know, he's always there. <laughs> you can almost hear his voice right now say that. <laughs> and, you know, he was I, right away I felt at home. You know, I, I met the guys. It was so different. They introduced me to so much new music. I thought I was like a music guy, and I, I didn't know anything about music. Between him, between Spanky, Matt, and Chainsaw, I learned about so many new bands. They turned me on to a whole new world of music, and it was a new life for me. And mm-hmm. I now you have a, a re- you have a really voice. you have a really powerful voice. Had you done a lot of singing before this? Oh, absolutely! I sing all the time. It was mainly uh, I sing. I spent a lot of time singing in karaoke bars on crystal meth. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot is it, is, it, is it better to sing karaoke on crystal meth or to listen well, it makes to the other singers that, on crystal meth it makes you think that you sound good uh singing like stevie nicks because <laughs> oh god can i let me share a story this is all about you doc but no i once sang stevie nicks stop dragging my heart around at karaoke okay and then, like a couple songs later, I'm not going to say a derogatory name to describe her, but this woman came up after me. You know, a karaoke, if someone does a song, you do not later in the night sing a song someone else has sang. Absolutely. It's, it's, and she, uh, and she went up and did Stop Dragging My Heart Around, almost like a direct challenge. Like, how dare she? Yeah. Oh, I've how I've been... dare she? Yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> what well, people who don't do karaoke don't realize it's war. It is. No, you get into some situations uh, in the in the karaoke world in the short time that I spent in that universe uh, singing karaoke in certain uh, uncertain territory. There are people oh that are there every evening. And, every and they're evening. There and they're, and when they show up on stage, the spotlight's on them, and they have a certain song, and they're yeah. going to do it, and there's going to be a certain reaction because that is all, you know, that's what they got going on for them. I remember I sang a lounge lizard version of Like a Virgin by Madonna, 
you know, but I nice. sing it like William Shatner, you know, like a virgin. Hey, touched for the very first time. Like little a little spoken word. Kind I of did thing. it spoken word, you know, I made it through the wilderness, but it's got the regular, you know, like a virgin Madonna music playing in the background. And to me, that's hilarious. But I did it in this club one night or this little strip mall bar and it pissed everybody off. I thought I was going to get. Yeah. Oh my God. When you say strip bar, uh, strip club, uh, like um, Federal Way or. Strip mall bar. Yeah. You know, just think of a suburb, you know, those strip malls. I got like a nail salon. They oh got God. like a 24 hour buffet or something. And then there's always like some little pub in the middle of it that right when you walk through the door, you hear that dart machine going. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. So See, what, in, in Seattle, what were some of the karaoke bars you used this to was do? Up in this was actually up in Everett, and there was a great oh, place. God. I mean, I had a lot of good memories at these places, but there was places like Kodiak Ron's, which later became a nightclub that they actually had live shows at. But I spent a lot of time speeded out of my mind singing Def Leppard in there. I used to go to a really cool place called Groovy's up in Everett. And, you know, I'd sing big, you know, this is back in like 98 when I was in the Navy and I'd come home and it was part of that big swing revival, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, big bad voodoo daddy and cherry popping daddies, you know, and I was out there. Zoot was, suit riot. I was zoot suit riding, dressing like a <laughs> dick. You know, I was buying like the big baggy pants and the like shirts, and you know, I was like, suit, suit, riot. You know? Oh my God, were you doing any straight stray cats? Oh God, I used to do rock this town and all that stuff. And I mean, those are good memories. My big thing when when I was doing that, I did a lot of the Doors, which brings me to you know mm -hmm. the vocal stylings that I like. I always so Jim Morrison good... was like your god. Jim Morrison was that guy. I'm not the reason I'm not in. I never went to law school was because I discovered the doors. It's kind of like I went and saw that Oliver Stone film, the doors, and there went any higher education in my life. There it went. Like, oh, I'm going to go do this. I'm <laughs> well, what's your favorite Doors song to do at karaoke back in the day? I always love to do the crystal ship. Oh, really? Interesting choice. Yeah, the crystal ship would. I would always bring down the house with the crystal ship. Of course, but no, you that, that song. But has, don't you don't you love it when someone doesn't uh, the not obvious choice for a band? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. When somebody says, "Okay, this is my pick," and then they pick something just way off the wall, like a deep cut, and you're like, "Yeah." It's not. Oh no, I like. So, the, so the the hardcore Doors fans my fire. appreciate huh? you. There's the big respect to the Doors fans saying, "Yeah, he's yeah. not doing light my fire. This is good." He's pulling out the deep cut, but that vocal range, you know, I was turned on around the same period when I discovered the Doors. I was turned on to a guy named. Danzig. Now, Danzig was the lead singer of the Misfits, but I hadn't discovered. Oh, thank you, thank you for the education. Yes, when <laughs> <laughs> Danzig was the lead singer of the Misfits. Oh, thank and, you, uh, Google. <laughs> I started Google Doc. <laughs> for those of us, for those of you who, who have been in a coma know. for the past thirty years, thank yes, you. Let me share my knowledge with you. Um, 
No, I discovered Danzig before I discovered the Misfits. So mm-hmm. I was listening to that and, you know, singing along with those albums. And that's where, you know, I started noticing, you know, when you're 14 and or 15, you notice, hey, I can kind of sound like that. You kind of cling on to that. And you're just like, yeah. And then you become the Danzig guy. And I did that. Did you ever do Danzig at karaoke? I did Danzig when they went at the in the early days of the karaoke bar. Danzig Mm -hmm. was limited. Now, nowadays, they just have a computer and they could pull up anything. Anything. Yeah. It's weird. But back then you'd get mother and that was about it. You know, you always knew there was like the karaoke guy there because he would bring his own CDs in. Nice. You know, he'd go up to the guy, you know, he'd go up to the DJ who was running the karaoke machine, slip him a five and go, okay, here's my CD. And you got to start it at this part right here. Oh my God. <laughs> well, can, can I, can I share two stories with you? Even though this is all about Please. you, doc. No, because want... now that we're, I, I had no idea we we're going to talk karaoke, which just stimulates me to no end. That's the beauty about doing an interview with me. It generally goes off the rails within five minutes and we don't even know what we were doing an interview about. <laughs> and I heard you on records with Ray. Yeah. Is it Ray or Roy? Records with Ray. Ray, I got it right. Yeah, no, no, Ray. no. Very quickly, though, because you mentioned the doors. I have to say this before I forget because I'm older than you and I have very few brain cells left. I've got Is... three work time. <laughs> In the mid 2000s, you know, right when, you know, American Idol was still new and kind of hot. And this karaoke bar was doing kind of like their version of American Isle with karaoke, very cruel. And they tried to, you know, they had these, you know, judges and they're being very Simon Cowell and week after week, you know, it was like, you know, if you won, you got through to the next thing. I, I didn't compete in it. I could not, you know, bear the scrutiny of these vicious judges, but I had a friend who competed and then he was getting through week after week. And then one week he wanted to do the doors. And I said, do backdoor man. Oh God. One of my I'm a backdoor man. <laughs> and he did it. God bless him. And the judges were just cruel. And I thought he was amazing, but yeah. they just didn't really get the doors. And I think that's why they were so vicious to him. He wasn't part of their tribe. No, he wasn't. But you know what? Sometimes I had undying he- respect at the fact he did that song. I love that. I like it when the underdog shows up in front of the lions and, and roars. <laughs> I've seen that one too many times when the people just don't get it, but the guy they don't they get, get it. it and that to and me, yeah. I like that performance better because the deal is no matter what, what the judges thought about him, I guarantee those judges will never forget him. No. And they will never do anything as important in their life as performing backdoor man at a karaoke competition. Exactly. <laughs> well, when you said bringing your own disc. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're just I'm, these flashbacks are flooding me. You know, Tacoma, oh Washington. It was a whole it was a whole period of my life. Uh, the Do whole, you remember the Pacific karaoke. Avenue? Huh? Do you remember Pacific Avenue? I do. In Tacoma. So so there was like this really dive bar on Pacific Avenue. 
And but they had really good karaoke. Go figure. And this was maybe like um late 2000s, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of hanging out doing hearing karaoke doing it. And there's this woman <coughs> who would go up and she'd always bring her own disc. And mm-hmm. she she looked kind of just this waif figure, just this tiny woman. And you think, oh, okay. And then she'd go up and just sing, and this huge voice would come out, and I'd go, oh, my God, she's amazing, like singing Mariah Carey and all this stuff. Right. And But I didn't realize until, you know, much later, when she brought the disc, she just brought, like, the Mariah Carey CD and said, crank it. And she was just, <laughs> like, mouthing it, just whispering oh, okay. the lyrics. We were hearing the real Mariah. And I thought, oh, See, my God. See, now that you told me that she was actually just lip syncing to Mariah, that makes this story way better. (laughs) Here's what's really cool about the story when she go up. Her name Uh was Cleopatra. Oh, my God. Was this like circa 99? Well, you think it was like 2008, maybe latest 2009. But that's the fun part about karaoke. You could be anonymous, and if you wanted to have like a stage name, you could yeah, do that. You could do, yeah. The world of karaoke, it definitely, that, that, that would be an episode in itself. But those days, my first days of singing The Doors and all of that at the karaoke is what led me to finally being in a band and led me to that rehearsal with Spanky, Chainsaw, Matt, and Zach. And I believe the first rehearsal, they just played the songs and I just growled a lot. I didn't, I didn't, cause I didn't have any lyrics. I was just listening to what they were playing. And I was just a monster up in their attic, growling and yelling and just doing that. And I was hired. <laughs> you know, you're in. See, remember back in the day, there was like these um, little weekly newspapers the where you'd, yeah you go into the classified and it would say like uh band seeks lead singer you know you just do these blind ads there'd be a phone number you'd call and i don't know what would they do say okay we'll try you out i mean I, I it was kind of like a risky thing to just show up and say hey i'm gonna try out for a band back then you know i think that was just the way i always looked at that i never i never did that i think i did it once in high school and I always went, you know, I was in high school and I always wound up in these bands with like older dudes and it was just awkward and I didn't belong there. But I mean like it, the like the like the old Leonard Skinner kind of crowd. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit, you know. That would have been cool, actually. No, you that, that would have been cool. I, <laughs> um, I just wound up like, you know, the couple of times I did it, it was just with guy. It's like dating. That's what I can compare those to. Um, those those ads in the paper. You're dating. You're going on a blind date, and you know you have a couple of references of what you guys like. You know they say, oh, we need a singer, not a douche, doesn't do drugs, and uh, no stairway to heaven, please. You know just stuff like that. By the so, way, you- we're we're gonna continue this, but what are you like on an actual blind date with a woman? 
a blind date. I think I've only been on one and it's usually like, you know, lights, camera action. I just start putting on the show and it used, you know, it, I think the only one time I was on a blind date, it basically ended with her very angry. And, you know, I was just like, okay, well, I, this has been great and all, but Tanya or Tina, whatever your name was, I really didn't give a shit. Um, you know, have a good life, you know, and I uh, don't, don't try and cry too hard on your pillow tonight. I can't imagine why she, the date didn't work out. <laughs> so there's something about being in a band that just has this aura about it. And everyone thinks that you, you start a band, you jam, in two weeks you get good, you play gigs. But what's the reality? I mean, how long did it take for you to merge with Spanky, Chainsaw, Zach, to really feel up and running before you guys could play a gig together? The reality is we with that band, we were it started out as an instrumental band and we were always put in the cart before the horses. <laughs> we were Spanky was when Spanky gets excited about something, I mean he loved you long time. <laughs> and uh he would just book shows and I knew after the first rehearsal, I was like, I need a CD of all your instrumental music. I'm going on vacation with my wife and I will be back. And I were you married at the time? I was married at the time. Yeah. And I went on a trip to, to Disneyland and I, on the road trip did a lot of drugs and I started writing lyrics to all their instrumental songs. And I came back your son at the time. What's that? Did you have your son at the time? No, my son wasn't born yet. Okay. So this was just me and my wife. We went on a one-week road trip down to California, and I spent the time in the car writing lyrics to the first song that had lyrics with the Dead Vampire. What was the first Dead Vampire song you wrote lyrics to? Bloody Bitch, which was oh, later... What, what was it called? It was called Bloody Bitch, later titled Bloody and that is on the <laughs> album We Are the Dead Vampires, which you can purchase at dalefall.bandcamp.com. <laughs> but bloody, yes, that was the first lyrics that I composed from an instrumental song called Bloody Bitch. And when you brought these lyrics to the band, how did they respond? The first, the first year in that band was one of the best times of my life. It, you know, because you're always nervous about what I've learned about being in bands, especially now as, you know, a songwriter. When you bring material to a group of guys that you want to play your music, and that's the key term there, you're bringing material to people that you want to play for you. You're not paying them to play. You're, you want them to play. So, you know, there's the moments when you bring material and you see that bored look in their eye, you see disappointment, they just don't get it. You know, I've been through all of it in that band. The first year, everything that everybody brought to the table creatively was gold. We were always excited. And I think that's why we started booking shows together as a band. I remember they did one show. I, they had one show on the books and I said, I won't be ready for that one but I'll be ready for the next. And I kept my word. We practiced every, I believe we were practicing on Monday nights and we, we rehearsed, you know, just, we were like soldiers. We just went through the material. Spanky recorded 
everything. So mm-hmm. we always had material to, you know, we always had a way to go back and see what we were doing. And it's like anything in the world when you start something out, you know, it's, it's rusty. It's, it, it's not going to make sense, but I knew it was something very, very special. And the first show we did in a basement of, um, this club, it was basically a basement of a building called the Mercury. And it was on a Sunday night, which is basically the worst night of the week to do anything. And we did a Sunday night show in front of about 10 people. And history was made. I, I gave that show my mm-hmm. special friends. My wife was in the crowd. Um, from the look on the majority of the people's face there, because these were all personal friends and you know personal family, they didn't get it. And that's what I realized what I was getting into. My life was changing. Everybody who knew me was like, okay, this guy's part of something totally different now. Best of luck to him. And you rarely saw those people at shows in the future because there is a major difference in the world of rock and roll when you perform between your friends and family and your fans. Mm -hmm. And I actually got to know what that was being in Dead Vampires because Dead Vampires actually had fans. And yeah. it was a pretty incredible thing to experience. Now, the Mercury, that was kind of like an industrial club. Yeah, great story about the Mercury. We did our first Halloween show there. And, you know, the owner at the time, I, um, you know, he was very kind to us. He was very, you know, had a, a lot of hospitality. Um, but, you know, he was very, you know, very into the image of the Mercury. The Mercury was kind of like an elite industrial club and spanky bless his heart you know he's you know they basically gave us full reign to decorate the club and spanky comes to this industrial club with you know like the the happy halloween decorations that you would put on your door in the suburbs (laughs) (laughs) you know the kind of stuff you get at target (laughs) at the bargain bin you know he was just decorating with all you know and it's Spanky. He's excited about it, and you're happy for him. But the owner walked through and said, "Absolutely not." Didn't <laughs> he have any sense of irony? What's that? Maybe they, couldn't this have been an ironic, artistic statement? I I don't know. It was just Spanky. You know, Spanky had his vision, and it was not what the owner wanted. Chainsaw, on the other hand, had a little bit. Uh, of a better handle on the aesthetic and he gathered all these old sticks all this old wood from their property and he turned that place into this huge like forest like a dead forest and it looked really cool it was that was more along the the owner was really happy with that and not you know so happy with the whole you know living in the suburbs Well, it's so so interesting you mentioned that as kind of your springboard for, you know, people outside of Seattle. Just describe a little more like what is the scene in a club like that? And especially when you're attracting your initial audience, you know, know well, well, you and Spanky have talked about going to like these kind of redneck clubs in the suburbs where it's much more of this machismo rock where they're just really when any kind of subtlety is lost on them what's the importance of going to like an industrial club that's really open to gay straight and just art rock and just kind of you know 
you're a right. An alternative scene was that really yeah. important at the beginning? It is. It. it I mean, uh, you know, I think it's important, but in a lot of ways, I'm glad I was in the frame of mind I was at the time, because all of that was lost on me. You got to keep in mind this was my first band, and I had a couple of ties in, in the community through my sound. Uh, my sound work. So I had ties to all these clubs. So I was just thinking we need to play every club. We can't just, you know, limit it to this and that, which in a when lot you of did, when you did this club though, were you already in full vampire makeup? Yeah. The first time I believe I did my makeup at the house and from there on it became, I, I, I don't, here's the thing, believe it or not, unless I'm on stage, I don't like to be seen in public in my makeup or my costume. Right. I'm not an exhibitionist unless I'm on stage. When I'm on stage, I totally turn into a different person. It's weird. It's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. But when I'm out in public, I hate it. I cannot stand being out there being like, look at me, look at me. I, I don't want to be seen. So it's a phobia, actually. You know, interesting because a lot of artists compensate, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm shy, but I become a big actor and I'm out there, you know, in front of the public, not uncommon. But what I'm curious is before Dead Vampires, were you into horror rock like Guar or Kiss, you know, making themselves yeah, was, up as I, these characters? I, Did you like that before? Oh, I loved it. Guar was one of my favorite, you know rock bands um at the time i was heavily i mean i've been into my mother introduced me to alice cooper so that's been a huge influence throughout my life in every mm -hmm. way um yeah the shocking rock and then i was really into marilyn manson you know when hootie and like i say when hootie and the blowfish screwed everything up in the mainstream rock and roll vein um uh, i really i dove underground and um, I discovered a lot of cool, you know, that's when I discovered like all the really cool rockabilly bands like the Cramps, the Reverend Horton. He, I, I really attached to that and kind of left headbanger music in the dust. Well, one and, thing that I saw from the band said about you in the documentary is you brought the rockabilly influence to the band. Maybe right, yeah, Chainsaw and Spanky were a little more pet shop boys and erasure and noise I think, what, I think at the time that's what made i mean later on in life you realize these are the things that maybe kind of hurt the band was that but what i always what i what i think made dead vampires such a special band and why it still to this day has you know it has a pretty solid following i get i still get mail you know and i still get messages people wanting those old records and you know and we haven't it hasn't been an active band in 10 years and i'm still getting feedback from isn't a big part so of a band or any artistic awesome. group chemistry and even though there's some That's differences did don't didn't you all fulfill the gaps in each other like you all brought something special that in in the mix made it greater than the sum of its parts Exactly. That's what I've always believed about Dead Vampires in its original formation. It was five different entities with different, you had five people with different 
passionate like music tastes. It wasn't like everybody likes the misfits. No, it was. I mean, if you get four guys in a room and they all say, Hey, I, I like the misfits. You like the misfits. I like the misfits. What is it going to sound like? It's probably going to sound like the misfits. No, you had a guy who was in the monster bands and all this weird, just eclectic music. You had a guy who was into, you know, just, uh, a God, <laughs> I, um, um, I believe Spanky used to call Chainsaw's music Nazis and nature nut music or something. Nazis and acorn music, but he it was it wasn't Nazis or it didn't have anything to do with that. It was just he was really into like a you know he he's into all kinds of noise, you know, mm -hmm. sound and skates and different you know pushing of, the boundaries. Know, avant, he was really into a lot of avant garde stuff, you know, avant -garde. out of this yeah. world really out of this world music that I never heard. And he turned me on to so much cool stuff. And then you had Matt who was just really into electronic music like Moog. And he had a really good handle on that. And Matt was a very, very talented keyboard player. He did. I used to at the time think, man, why don't you upgrade your, your, your rig a little bit, but no, that what he was doing on his gear on his keyboard was really special and it he had a vision and spanky had a vision zach was a you know a garage rock guitarist and then you know you had me as the front man and i think those different entities really made that band what it was it was a really special thing and that's why it was really unique if i when was you, in a when, band you, when you play band, these clubs you as the lead singer you're like the first line of defense right and it's interesting talking to Chainsaw and Spanky. When it's good, it's good. When the crowd's good, it's great. When they're hostile, you as lead singer take a lot of that hostility. I mean, I learned what, what, is, what does it feel like to be the buffer for the band? Well, what I developed in that band was I've always been... As you can probably tell in this interview, I've always been a frustrated comic, stand-up comic. <laughs> like in every faucet of my life, it's like showtime. <laughs> I'm always trying to, you know, push my new material, you know, and what I think's funny into just a regular conversation. Mm -hmm. And what you learn as the front man, because trust me, we played in front of some pretty hostile crowds. You know, I'm up there, you know, wrestling around with a, a, a big stuffed snake that you would win at the carnival. And I'm in a room full of angry as fuck crust punks that don't oh have a sense of humor, don't have futures. Hmm. And they just want to slam. <laughs> and you get this. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you start realizing, you know, what situation you're in. But through all those shows I developed, a stand-up routine you know i developed a way of kind of sh shitting on the audience if they gave me any lip you know so you talked to I, the I audience came out between songs you, know, you, had some, you had some spiel oh, going god i would include you know I, yeah i there there was times i mean spanky just recently went through all of his videos and he was showing me and i haven't seen these perform some of them i haven't ever seen i just know that they happened and yeah, I was like a kind of a cheaper version of Andrew Dice Clay. If somebody you kind of look like with me too, on stage. especially when you have the sideburns. Like I said, you know, I would 
when I get on stage, it's like you're a different person. There's a different guy that's up there. And when you yeah, put a mask you on, me the, when you put a mask on, yeah, does that give you license to be, to be a little ballsier? Yeah, I think that's what it was. And I realized that later on when I was in like bands where I didn't wear makeup or a mask, I had a hard time looking at the audience, you know. With a mask, I can kind of do anything. But when you're actually face to face with everybody, yeah, I get stage fright. I do to this day. I just did a bunch of shows last year, and I still get stage frighted. Oh my god, it's really weird. But once the music starts, it's on. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, Spanky was showing me these videos, and yeah, it was like this kind of weird PG thirteen. Andrew Dyson, and that's back to the audience because you get audiences, you know. And like I said, we played a lot of different audiences. We were playing, you know, in the gay community, which was always fun, which was always great. And then I started, yeah, doing because my whole idea was like, we need to play everywhere we can. I wasn't thinking the repercussions of that. I wasn't thinking of the repercussions of what it would be like to be playing up in Everett in front of a bunch of butt rockers. You know, I'm just thinking the more people, the better, right? When really it puts you in some awkward situations that, mm-hmm. that the rest of the guys, I don't think, you know, probably, it probably turned them off. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I know it did because that's what eventually led to, you know, the band breaking up after a couple of years. Cause it was, you know, it became more about like, I think, believe chainsaw said it did become more about the shows i was all about like we got to get play more in shows which really kind of hurts the band because a band should only play once in a while if you're local and you're not out on the road because people lose interest but my whole idea was well we play different venues we play different towns in front of different audiences and we're bound to turn somebody onto our music doing that but it was a lot it was a big learning experience all right well i want to talk about what you did after dead vampires especially your solo cd before we get into that and i really do like your solo cd as you know but i love that solo yeah it was it was called look what the devil made me do before we get into that i just want to talk about that whole period you know between dead vampires you doing your solo cd again we're still in like this post grunge environment but it seems like after Dead Vampires, without those constraints, you could embrace your full rockabilly self. So I'd like you to describe, you know, what are your rockabilly influences? Because some of your work is this very 50s, and it's, I really like it. And it's almost, to me, your solo work would be like something, you know, David Lynch would love to use as a soundtrack you know that you know that david lynch retro rockabilly oh God, kind yeah. of sound you know what i mean it's, it's the sound you hear when you see <laughs> yes the sound you hear it's it's my idea of what the sound that's made when angels are making love is the music <laughs> you hear in a david lynch movie <laughs> exactly or more or less angels Angels flying down from heaven and gang banging my face, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> and then what is it that attracts you to that sound? Because you're so young. You know, when you were born, Elvis, I think I think you were born the year Elvis died. I was born 
for six months before he died. Yes. Yeah, because you were born in seventy-seven. Um, something. Yes, yeah, seventy-seven, and he died in August, and I was born in February. Yep. Yep. Um. So the solo sound. So yeah, I did. So I was in Dead Vampires for six years, and it was to date one of the best experiences I've had in my life. After Spanky and Chainsaw, you know, we we went through lineup changes and we recorded a we recorded a new another album called the day after halloween and it was more rock and it was more rock and that was a really fun time as well it's like i look at this dead vampires as like these two different chapters there was a first chapter that was very bittersweet and very you know dear to me and then that second chapter was a goddamn ro- roller coaster ride because we it, it felt like we were on the verge of you know going pe- going to that place that a band wants to go that you try so hard to get to and we were we were getting there you know we were there and then matt passed away and it you know the rest is history you know it's just like we didn't want to go on without him so when that happened and you kind of took a break how did you regroup yourself and get to the point when you decided i want to make a rockabilly album you know well heroin doesn't pay for itself no did you um... do heroin No. Talk. Did you do heroin? No, I fell into a. Uh, uh, no, I, I was a painkiller guy. Oxy I was really Compton? into painkillers. Like I went through that. Yep, yeah, yeah, I was really into that for about three years. I oh I, I, I crawled into a bottle. Did you and... have like an accident or a back problem or what happened? No, no, I, I started um, after dead vampires ended and i was also in another local band which was kind of like a super group with a bunch of friends and it was a lot of fun but it wasn't as it didn't hold the weight that dead vampires kind of like did, but kind of like an audio slave or it was like it was called yeah yeah it was just a bunch of from other bands and we put together this band well the drummer did and it was called los bastardos and it was just more like a motorhead kind of you know it was a little bit you know a little bit more hardcore um, but I did that for a couple of years and through that period, you know, I've always, I've always considered my, um, music career to, to be like a behind the music without the getting rich and famous part. Cause all the other shit happened. <laughs> like you're in a band, it's great. You have good times and then shit hits the fan. And before you know it, you're popping pills in your head, like a pelican. Oh my God! See, back then it was easier to get a prescription for OxyContin. Oh God, it was. I found the Elvis doctor. It started with just something stupid, like you know, oh God, my sciatic nerve is hurting me, and then there happens to be you know a certain person there that goes, oh well, take one of these, and I was completely naive to pills and all that. I didn't, I didn't know. Like I said, I was a meth head. That was it, and I stopped doing that. Once I started Dead Vampires and I was all good to go, but no, I started. I I, I fell down that that rabbit hole that a lot of people do with with painkillers. You know, it's it's you know it's 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 a it's a nasty world if you if you have the mind of an addict. You know, if you if you have an addictive personality, and I I fell for it hook, line, and sinker, 
And that was kind of my life for a few years. And um, I wrote Look What the Devil Made Me Do and, re and recorded demos for that in the tail end of my addiction. And, and those were all personal songs. They were all songs that um, came from a way different place. You got to understand, I spent about seven years writing songs about vampires and fucking dead chicks. And now I was kind of going to a uh, place where, uh, you know, you, you don't brag about it at parties. It was a really personal spot, you know, really. And what I've learned about when you write something personal and you wear your heart on your sleeve, that's what this was. This was like me putting my heart on my sleeve and pouring everything out into five songs. And right. and it I had these unrealistic expectations of what that would turn into. You took a personal inventory, said, here I am. This is who I am now. How did you yeah. put together a band to actually record this? Well, over the, over the time the, um, of Dead Vampires, I had developed really good relationships with pro musicians. And the last two the bass player and the drummer of the last lineup of dead vampires, Steve Jones and rich Evans, they were a great rhythm section. Steve Jones, he was in ancient warlocks. He was in the earaches. He's in tons of bands and he runs his own recording studio. He's now relocated to Olympia. Dear guy, great drummer, great guy to have in your band. And you know, he was a solid guy to have, be a part of that as well as rich who is one of the best musicians that i've ever played with in my life this is one of those multi-talented can play every instrument you know and plays it well kind of a pain in the ass sometimes because he'll tell you when you're doing it wrong and i need that guy to tell me when i'm doing it wrong when i'm playing the wrong note whereas you know i was used to the world of punk rock where it's just like play it loud and who gives a shit what's that right Right, and indulge me here and, and let me say the track list of Look What the Devil Made Me Do. Five songs, and I love this album, by the way. So, Poison Candy, Look What the Devil Poison Made Candy. Me Do, Desert Bride, 21st Century Fox, and Superhero. Does each of mm -hmm. those songs have a special meaning to you? Well, yeah, like um, Poison Candy, that was just a story. That was just me trying to still be creative in that dead vampire. That the I wrote the music to that like 10 years prior. It was always this rockabilly riff I had that never really made it into the dead vampire's canon. But that was me on guitar, and I wrote a fun little song about a girl that, you know, basically turns on her lover but the lover comes back and haunts her for the rest of her life. So that was me being creative with the song, you know, just trying to write a story, what I was used to in Dead Vampires, not real life, just kind of opening the album up with a like, here you go, here's my new album, this is my solo project, this isn't Dead Vampires, this is me, 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 and this is my heart. Right. Look what the devil made me do. <laughs> which became the title of the album. That was which another an riff I amazing track. I mean, it's moody. That is so David Lynch. It is. 
and David Lynch and all those all that music, I've always been inspired by female singers. Um oh, Patsy Klein is okay. you know, a lot of people, you know, when they hear my stuff, it's just instantly Danzig. That's that's all I've ever gotten. I never really over the years I've tried to develop my own voice. Whereas in the beginning, you just kind of do what you know. And of course, people automatically hear your influence. And mine obviously was, you know, Jim Morrison and Danzig. But I've always tried to develop my own style of singing. And female singers have always had more of a special place in my heart and inspired me more than male singers. Mm -hmm. Patsy Cline, um, Joanna from uh, Concrete Blonde. Mm -hmm. Janice yeah, by, by the way, I, I saw Concrete Blonde. I saw Concrete Blonde live in 1985. I never saw them live. Anyway, did, you, I, did um, I, I interrupt? I'm sorry because I love. No, Julie that's fine. Jones. I like it. No, I love Concrete Blonde. They played so no, many I, times. I saw them because they opened for a Cindy Lauper in '85 at the Paramount Theater in Seattle. That would have been amazing. See, those are the stories i like to hear i like hearing about that i like hearing like when somebody says they saw i had a, a an, an instructor uh, one of my instructors from the art institute his band for adam ant in like 1982 at the oh my god i would just that would have been amazing pick, yeah and i would just pick his brain about that that experience and what it's like because that's the stuff that i'm turned on is like those shows that I just, I was not, I was five, you know, I, I was, I wasn't going to concerts then. So. But when you say Julie Cruz in the early nineties, oh my God, her work with David Lynch, not just on Twin Peaks. Remember the industrial symphony? Yeah. I remember everything, all the stuff that she did. I, I discovered it all later on because Early 90s, again, when I was 14, I loved the movie Blue Velvet. I loved mm -hmm. Eraserhead. And I, wild, I think Wild at Heart was at the time. But yeah. I never, that was all I knew of David Lynch. And then the whole Twin Peaks thing started. And I was a late, late bloomer. I, oh my God. I remember everybody was asking. Do you, do you know, I kinda, do you know I, Fire Walk With Me? I saw it in the theater, yeah. Oh my God. And Julie Cruz on that. That is like one of my all time greatest influences. Firewalk. When she sings. Soundtrack. When she, that, that soundtrack. Um, I actually, one of the car riffs um, inspired one of my dead vampire songs, uh, dead and blue. If you wow. listen to when uh, Laura Palmer and Donna are sitting there talking. Mm -hmm. And you hear that guitar melody playing in the background when they're talking in their living room about James. I forgot what the name of it was on the track. I forgot the name of the track, but yeah, that inspired a dead vampire song, that guitar. Why riff. do we like that era, that kind of fifties nostalgia, but remade through another decade rockabilly. What is it? What's at the core of that? That's so appealing. I I think it's um, it's very dreamy. There's something dreamy and innocent. I, I, I've always been fascinated by teenage 
there's always these cre there's something about 50s music and uh, a it's the genesis of rock and roll but i'm even talking i'm not just talking about rock and roll like chuck berry and you know little richard and all that i'm talking about like the girl groups like the Shirelles and those the dream Chiffon. pop band, the Chiffons and leader of those the pack. dream yeah. pop bands of the early. Yeah. But there was also these like ballads, these like car crash ballads, like I'll, you know, my, you know, little Susie went to heaven. I'll meet her someday. Kind of. And <laughs> if you really dig, if you really dig deep, there's actually like some creepy songs from that period in that vein, oh, yeah. like strange things happen in this world. But isn't the whole thing about 50s rock, it's all about the good girl hooking up with the bad boy and the bad things right. that happen. And there's, yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's this innocence to it all, but maybe it's just some subconscious thing like, we all want to hook up. We all, we're all more turned on by that bad boy than we are the it's little crappy about guy. about the, <laughs> the sheltered good girl hooking up with the bad boy. Yeah, I mean, isn't that... That's generally how things pan out because why do you want to hook up with the, the prep and the, the, you know, the, the, the guy who's got a letter on his shirt? You know, it's just like that's so typical. What happens when you hook up with the bad boy? Your life is ruined. That's what happens. But it's a, I think it's a way more exciting ride than hooking up with the typical milk toast prep guy with the flat top and wings haircut. And he's just, you know, cruising to a good future. And of course, yeah, you want a good future, but you also want excitement in your life. And there's the bad boy. And it's always way more exciting. It's just... It's not going to be very healthy for you. <laughs> Don't you think that's and why I, in the eighties things got a little too squeaky clean by the end of the decade? I mean, look what happened to Chicago, my God! And maybe that's oh, why people loved grunge because they were so desperate for a new kind of bad boy. Well, yeah, I mean, and the thing about grunge and what I what I think about grunge, I think people were just, I think. I think too much of anything will burn you out. And I think the 80s was all about decadence. It was all about, you know, just excess. The bands were outrageous. The music was outrageous. It was all just neon light in your face from 81 to 89. And then people get, then you get like a third wave of bands still trying to cash in on this. But you're burned out and then something new comes along. There's always some, something waiting in the works that you're not expecting. And mainstream wise for a while, all those grunge bands were playing probably glam rock. If you see pictures of Alice and Jane's in their earlier days, they are totally glam rock. Oh my God. Now, now you, 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 you tipped me off. Okay. Do you ever like go, down the rabbit hole on YouTube. Occasionally. <laughs> and you just get into some old band. I mean, I do that with Alice in Chains sometimes. I do. Jar of Flies. What a great a album. album. And, and a little aside, this is all about you, Doc, but to bring it back to me for one brief moment, 
back when Allison James <laughs> was actually really big on the charts and doing their thing. I was living in the U District. I had their CD, Jar of Flies, and I looked on the back, and they had an address for their fan club where you could write to them. Uh-huh. This little P.O. box kind of thing, this little private mail service. I looked at it, I said, that's two blocks from where I live. So I walked down the street, and there's a little private mailbox you know, service. Oh, my God, that's where Allison Chains gets their mail. And, that was, and I think people in other parts of the country don't realize when you lived in Seattle in the late 80s and early 90s, this whole grunge rock thing, you would run into these people. Although yeah. I didn't do drugs, so I didn't like run into them, you know, their drug dealers. But I mean, they were like accessible. You know what I mean? And they still are. That's what I learned in my sound days doing clubs. And this is long after that whole grunge thing happened. Because the thing about grunge is those were guys that didn't want to be famous. They weren't trying to be rock stars. They were playing music in their basements because it's raining outside and there ain't anything else to do. That's what they do. They're just playing rock and roll. And somebody comes around and goes, I discovered the new sound. And before you know it, ta-da, it's grunge. But yeah. that... So I want to get your opinion on grunge, okay? First of all, this is Chris Cornell, rest in peace, amazing musician truly did you prefer soundgarden chris cornell or audio slave chris cornell i liked soundgarden black hole sun i was a black hole sun guy yeah but how about like a stone audio slave uh it was a good song i liked what audio slave was doing it just didn't really how can I say? I was in a different frame of mind by that point. That would just was radio rock, you know, the white noise of the world. You know, I call it prom rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it's just, it wasn't where I was at. You know, Soundgarden had a better chance when it came to the grunge music. I was really into Alice in Chains. They're like my favorite band from Seattle. Good for you. High five. Because I, I, I that, think. Because I think for Seattle bands, I mean, I love Nirvana. Yeah, I love Nirvana. Chains, when you like voluntarily listen to music from that era, who do you like now want to listen to? Alice in Chains. Yeah. That's what I listen to. That's like, they, I still listen to that. I got burned out because over the last 10 years, and I'm just as guilty of it, there has been a, um, a blizzard of tribute bands in Seattle because playing in a tribute band is really fun. My bass player, Rich, he just mentioned how, yeah, you know, you're playing somebody else's music, but when we've played in tribute bands, we have had more fun than a lot of nights playing our original music. Because when you're playing your original music and you're on the wrong side of 30, getting people to come out, is a chore 
you understand maybe in your 20s it was a lot easier to get people to come out to a show because you're all young you have energy you want to go out you want to do things there's people there to meet people are going to everybody's going to have a good time but in your 30s your audience starts getting mortgage payments they start having kids they start they become drug addicts or worse they become sober like me and <laughs> and it's just like it's just this the older you get it's harder and harder to get that that audience in there but with tribute bands you have an audience people go see tribute bands and i've done like three of them and they're always a blast do 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 you get gigs at casinos because i think that's they they play the the tribute bands you know the casinos Uh uh-huh i played a casino in the danzig tribute band i did (laughs) if you can imagine that did you play Imagine all your fee away? Did you like lose all your money that you earned playing well, the no. gig? No, what I learned is that I'm a terrible manager and I shouldn't be in charge of the money. Because the thing about casinos, they pay lots of money. Yeah, they're, they're they, a really good gig. Oh, no. Get this. This is the story. I was doing sound at a Peter Frampton concert. And this was at the Tulalip Casino. And the guy who runs the show inside at the Cabaret Canoe, he asked me, and this is a true story. He's like, hey, are you the Danzig guy? And I'm like, is that what I've morphed into? (laughs) I guess, yes, I'm the Danzig guy. And he's like, how much do you, I want to do a Halloween show. How much do you guys charge? And I, you know, this is my business sense. I looked at him dead in the eyes and I said, ah, $500. And he's like, oh, excellent. We can do this. And he walked away. And it's that moment when you realize I could have gotten way more, couldn't I? $500. Oh, my God. I did a casino gig for $500. And I asked a mutual friend who was in a mutual band fronted by Jim Morrison. But it was a tribute band. I, and I asked him how much he got, and then I realized I completely not only fucked myself, but I fucked the band. Did that but even cover band. like gasoline for your I round mean, trip? You know what it is? It's just that's what I'm used to. You know, that's if you get a hundred, if you walk away, this is this is the sad reality. You wanted to know some sleazy stories, and it's not even really sleazy. It's just the reality of being in a band circa 2004 to now if i walked out of the club with a hundred dollars after a show that was an excellent night and i mean that's every band member being paid and you're still got a hundred bucks you gotta understand it's a door you get like a door uh they charge at the door and they split it up between three bands and most bands, everybody, for the most part, everybody gets along. Usually you're in that situation where you've dragged two buddies of yours that are in other bands and it's a show that didn't turn out very well. And you, you're giving them 20 bucks for all of them. And it's not a good feeling, but, but you, the, the used to is making more than you that night. Oh yeah. The bands are, you know, <laughs> They say never date a stripper and never date a musician. Well, strippers at least have money. 
<laughs> musicians, you, you don't make money doing, I don't know how you do it. I know some people, they figure it out, but that's where you got to have a manager. You got to be in the business. You got to have somebody who knows what they're doing. When you're just a local group and you're just clinging to the idea of playing a gig because we're getting on a bill that was a lot of a lot of what caused a lot of trauma too is like we would get invited to do a show and i knew that it would be a big show a lot of these shows were rockabilly bands and dead vampires wasn't really a rockabilly band like you know chainsaw and all the mention i brought that influence into it but it was a combination of things but we would play a lot of rockabilly shows really shows bring a lot of you know they could bring a pretty hardcore mm -hmm. element but the money that you make at it it's not much you usually on these bills with like eight bands and it's like you're gonna split 500 bucks between eight bands each band yeah. has four people so it just gets into this weird world mm -hmm. where it's not about money it's about trying to get exposure at least at the time that's what i was thinking i was like fuck the money think of all the people that we are playing in front of and then we'll sell our cds and we get more of a name out there and people start knowing about us that's what i was looking at so then you get into that mentality eight years down the road when a guy who was going to give you five thousand dollars you just go no i'll pick 500 and he's like oh see you on halloween <laughs> Well, we're going to get into the final stretch here, and I want to talk about horror movies. Oh, please. Let's. Is there anything <laughs> that I've stirred up? Before we get into horror movies, I want to make sure because I have the attention span of a goldfish. And is there anything that I haven't covered that you really wanted to get as far as the music with the solo album or the horror yes. elements? Because after Look What the Devil Made Me Do, I think you put out a single called Years and Years, the Zombie Love Song. Yes, that was a sweet little, the, the origin of that song was I wrote it for a friend, a fan contacted me and he wanted a song written for his wedding. And that's what I came up with. I came up with that song and it's one of the best songs I've ever written in my life. And that was just, Somebody just said, I want a song. We're getting married on Halloween. We're a big fan of yours. <clears throat> Would you write us a song? And I brought that song to Rich, and we and he, we recorded it. And it's one of the best songs I've ever recorded. It's I love great. It. it has a very retro 50s feel to it. Yeah, it's very soldier boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but was it kind of nice to be like asked to write something because it I've, seems like sometimes when you are given parameters those are good you do your best work when you have some limits you do yeah you don't want to like do something completely dastardly that they're gonna be embarrassed to play but no i put my heart i always know if i put my heart and soul into it i i don't care what the outcome is it's like oh that that was really cool and that particular song i put my heart and soul into and that's what the beauty is about dead vampires. There's been a good handful of people that have written me or contacted me and they played that song at their, they've played a dead vampire song at their wedding. They had their wow. first dance to it. They've, they play it all the time on Halloween. I get these messages and it's like, that is why, you know, 
maybe 20 years ago, okay, I wanted to do rock and roll because I wanted to be Jim Morrison and all this shit that I grew up, you know, idolizing. But now, after all is said and done, and I'm not even doing music at this precise moment in my life, that is more of a reward than having a career. It's just knowing that, okay, there's somebody out there that I don't know. And they were so moved by a song that I wrote that they played it at their wedding or had their first dance to it. And I mean, that to me, and that happens all the time. You know, it's like, I get that message once in a while and it's like, wow. That's amazing. What is your most beautiful memory of dead vampires? Beautiful memory. Um, Yeah. Dig deep. Beautiful memory. The last show, the last show, and um, I think I realized that the last show that we played, the final show at the Funhouse, because, you know, it's a punk rock Halloween show, and we played closed casket, and you look out, and you see tears in people's eyes, because they know it's the end, and that that just proved that I was like, okay, this, this was, we did something special. We did something cool. We've been in this room for the last six years, having the time of our lives. And here we are, we, we we're, we're calling it quits. And these people don't want it to end. You know, they're just kind of like, man, this is a chapter closing. And that to know that you've done something that's relevant. I mean, we're all artists and I don't, you know, back to what we were first talking about, instantly forgotten. How much art have you created? That it's not that anybody hates it. It's not that anybody loves it. Is it even relevant? You know, does it, does anybody even acknowledge it? When you find that it has been acknowledged and it is relevant to somebody so much that they're teary eyed because it's not going to happen again, or it's just, it represents some special part of their life. That to me means more than record contracts or anything. And I did a little solo thing last Halloween where I played a couple of dead vampire songs and played a couple of my own. And you you look out in the audience and it was the same experience. I played those dead vampire songs. There was people there and they were, they were, they, they were crying. They were just like, wow. You know, and it's just like, I was able to create something that touched somebody that much. And that is the most beautiful moment in that band. I can still hear that. Mu- I can still listen to that music for the longest time. I didn't listen to those albums. And my son found it on Google play and he was playing day after Halloween. He was playing the album and he was listening to it and he wasn't listening to it and liking it because I'm, the guy on there, he was listening because he loves it. <laughs> now, so how old is your son, by the way? He's 15. Oh, my God. I think the last time I saw you in person was like over a year ago at Crypticon at, with your son. Crypticon. Yeah. He so met, uh, what the, what, what's it like to take your son to Crypticon and introduce him to all these, you know, cool horror things that influence you? He's the most... He he is the luckiest kid <laughs> I have ever met in my life. This kid has had has met celebrities from the Crypticon world and the Marvel universe because of these conventions. 
You know, he the 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 guy that he wanted to meet there was Ray Wise. You nice. know, from from Leland Twin Palmer. Peaks. But yeah, yeah, from Twin Peaks. But he didn't want to move. He didn't want to meet Leland Palmer. He wanted to meet the guy from RoboCop. <laughs> oh my god! Me, like the great father I am, showed him RoboCop when he was nine years old, and he loves that movie. But Ray uh, Ray uh, Ray Wise plays um, um, one of the uh, baddies. In RoboCop, and they were pretty, pretty brutal. Nice. Leon, Leon, I believe is his name in the movie. But um, I've taken because you have, you have into, a strong bond with your son, which I appreciate. I do, and the song on the devil, look what the devil made me do, is superhero. That was a song I wrote when mm-hmm. I was strung out and realizing that you know maybe this music thing isn't gonna pan out the way that I wanted it to, you know, and maybe I'm not a rock star like I wanted to be, but this kid here, the way he looks at me and the way that we communicate, I'm the biggest rock star in that kid's life. And if anything ever happened to me, it would be the end of his world. So that, that song was what I wrote about what I was feeling. Well, what a lucky kid. My reason to live. But what a lucky kid to have a father like you. Yeah. And he is the reason that I keep going on and keep moving. And I I spoil the shit out of him. You know, he, he gets to sit <laughs> front row at Alice Cooper and Alice Cooper gives him his cane. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you know the, what? The Crypticon, I saw you and your son at. Yeah. Because, they, that, you know, they, they, they do this Twin Peaks things, you know, the past few years. Cheryl Lee, Laura Palmer herself was there. I met her that year. Yeah, me too. And I always, on principle, I've never paid a celebrity for a photo. I don't know why. I'm just, I'm stuck on that. Because maybe I think, you know, peer to peer, we just don't, you know, pay for this. But she was the one and only celebrity I've ever gone up to and paid for an autograph and a photo. And there it was is... so worth it. Because you know what? Laura Palmer, come on. I got a picture with Laura Palmer that day, too. And she spent most of her time talking to London. She was really fascinated with London. And mm-hmm. um, But no, the yeah, there is the whole paying for a picture thing. There is something, and I have completely fallen victim to it over the last, the last few years. I've been like fuck it. You know, they got this thing now called cameo because a lot of the musicians, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, quarantined. They're not out making money. So they do, you know, you, they do a private video for you and you can give it to somebody for their birthday. And Tom Savini, I paid to do Tom Savini and he didn't only wish London a happy birthday. He showed him his studio where he works and he showed him all these masks he's made. Cool. So that to me was worth the. I was like, "This is for me. Fuck, fuck my kid. This is great." Right, but, but it, it's, a, it's a weird environment when you get into this fan worship, because you're on both sides. You want to right. introduce your kids to you know his fans, but you're like an icon that people would probably pay you for an autograph and a photo and all that. And it's kind of weird how you kind of gauge it. And I think, like with Laura Palmer, 
you kind of pick, okay, what's important to me? And to me, Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me and the Laura Palmer story was such an influential part of my creative life. Yeah, sure, I'll pay 40 bucks for a photo. Why not? Yeah, that's how I look at it. I mean, it's different when you go to the Comic-Con. With the horror conventions and, you know, the cameos, I pick stuff that has, like, extreme sentimental value. I don't just, you know, pick some B-movie actor that, oh, that was kind of... No, it's got to be something special. But, like, the Marvel world, and for a long time, you know, I was taking my kids to those, and, you know, you get his picture with Captain America, you know, Chris Evans or Josh Brolin, you know, just stuff like that. That, to me, is where you really kind of feel the sleaziness of it because it's like you are waiting in line a long time, mm-hmm. and you're in that line, and you've paid the stupidest amount of money for a picture you've ever paid for in your life. And you literally walk in there, say hello, smile, and it's done. It is literally wow. like I would I would imagine it's what it feels like to give a blowjob on Aurora. <laughs> kind of like a, a sleazy uh, a sexual um, kind of semi-satisfying exchange. Yeah, and it is. I mean, because for my kid, that's the world. You know, when he gets a picture with Spider-Man, he's never going to forget that. But for me, I'm just kind of looking at there because that would happen in the live sound world, you know, or I'd, I'd be around idols. I remember one time I was in catering. I was doing Ringo All-Star, Ringo Stars All-Stars at the oh, cool. Chateau St. Michelle. And if anybody knows me, huh? I... My favorite band of all time is the Beatles. Yeah. I was in catering, just having my lunch, and I heard the voice that I've grown up listening to my whole life. Octopus's Garden. It's Ringo Starr. He's like right at... His all-star band? Yeah. One of of the members of Toto was part of his all-star band. Oh, he had everybody. He had like Billy Squire. He had Edgar. Um, Billy Edgar Squire. I want to say he had Billy Squire. He had uh, Colin Hayes. And this is this is how this is a funny story. This is how I'll always remember the day I made eye contact with Ringo Starr, and that's where it ended, because I heard the voice and I went, "Oh my God!" And I actually got starstruck, and that never happened. I was kind of you know, but it, it's Ringo Starr. And then he turns around and he looks at me, and I did that thing where you don't want to be a weirdo. So I, I stopped looking at him and directly look at Colin Hayes from Men at Work, who's got that f- fucked up Oh my God, eye. he was playing with Ringo Starr? He was. And Oh my but God. That, that's what I'll always remember is that trying not to freak Ringo Starr out, but then getting freaked out because I'm looking directly at Colin Hayes, who's directly looking at me. And I don't know if he's directly looking at me because his eyes floating all over the fucking place. And I'm like, I need to stop feeding and get out of here. <laughs> but what is it we think we will gain by locking eye contact with a famous musician? Like after the show, they'll come up and say, I locked eyes with you. Join my band. Exactly. <laughs> but what are we going to gain going up to somebody? What are, what are we going to tell them that they ha- haven't heard before? 
you know, I, I always liked Mitch Hedberg, Berg's uh, way. He tells a story of when he met Peter Frampton and he got starstruck, but he's like, what, what do you say to him? Hey, Peter Frampton, do you like toast? <laughs> As do I, you know, you just, what oh, my God. Say? Oh, I'm sure. But I love that you say send me because you do. And I understand the peer thing. You want to look right, right. Hey, I'm but, a musician too. But for people who don't know but these you outdoor concerts, like the San mm-hmm. Michel, and they the have amaz- they have amazing musicians at the San Michel outdoor concerts. Oh, they're all star act. They're 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 all class acts that play those those um, concert series. You know, I mean, who all- have you who who have you seen there over the years? Oh God, I've seen, I've seen Steve Miller. I saw um, nice. Gypsy Kings. Um, I saw Huey Lewis and the News. Nice. I saw Moody Blues there. Um, oh my God, Moody was, Blues. What was that like? I would, you know, I saw Moody, Moody Blues once in 1990, but that didn't yeah. count. But how was your Moody they, Blues experience? They, they 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 delivered the goods. One of my favorite albums is Days of Future Past, with yeah. all the 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 corny poetry, cold hearted old, breathe deep. You know all the really ridiculous music. They did a fair one of my favorite songs. They did a Twilight Time, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, they did it with all the symphony. But the symphony wasn't there. But they you know they had like a back. It was. I, I had like an out of body experience. I was just like, cause I yeah. love that song. So, but they, they delivered the goods, uh, moody blues. I saw, I saw, um, um, they, I did a lot of jazz fest. Jazz isn't my bag. Um, I'm going to say right? I, jazz is music. I want to enjoy, but always fail at enjoying. Oh my <laughs> just, well, well, the San Michel concerts, speaking of jazz, I saw, Boss Gags. Boss Gags, yeah. He was good. Michael McDonald. Michael McDonald, yeah. Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. Okay. They all had their own kind of jazz-ish elements. Yeah. That's all Chateau St. Michel music, by the way. (laughs) And I, oh, one of the most recent ones I saw was Shaka Khan. Oh, I did a... I did sound for Shaka Khan at the Emerald Queen Casino. Oh my God! What was, was she like to work with? What was what was she like during the sound check? The thing about those casino gigs is you don't hardly. There's only so many artists that you actually get to see during the sound check. The sound check is usually you got to understand. You get there earlier. You get there before anybody. You load in gear. You deal with the uh, backline company that's dealing with the, the instruments because they're generally always renting these instruments. And you get your side of things set up, and then the crew arrives, and that's the sound engineers. And you you find out whether or not you're doing sound that night, or if they have their own people, and then you get everything dialed in for them. And then the band shows up, and then you're working with the band for about anywhere from 45 minutes to four hours. And there's only about three people that I can think of off the top of my head that actually show up for their sound check. Smokey Robinson. Okay. BB King. Yeah. And this was my favorite. I made friends with him that day. Wayne fucking Newton. 
Wow. Guy is a complete professional. Shows up, shakes your hand. Hi, I'm Wayne. We're going to be working together today. You know, just that whole thing, that whole Vegas thing. And I was out in the middle of nowhere casino out in like Chehalis or something. And it was Wayne Newton. And he he was the most professional, awesome guy Mm -hmm. to work with. I worked with him all day, did the show with him. He comes up, he shakes your hand and leaves. And it's just like that experience was worth more than the money I'm getting paid for this. (laughs) Wow. Wayne Newton. That's how it generally with the casino circuit, it's generally a band. They show up, that's the sound check. And then Kenny Rogers shows up in a car 10 minutes before he goes on stage, goes out there, rakes, you know, dishes out the hits. He gets in his car right after it's over and he's gone. And that's just nails it. That's Smokey Robinson. That must've been pretty amazing. Oh yeah. That's a, all those R and B shows, you know, I got to do uh, Al Green. I got to do, um, Oh wow. The Whispers and um, the wow. Spinners. I did a lot of cool R&B stuff. And um, nice bands are always usually the best bands you work with. And really funny stories, you know, like um, Smokey Robinson. You know, he just, he just works with his band all day. But B.B. King was just sitting there noodling on his guitar. You know, you know, he, I got a really funny story about him. He's sitting there playing his guitar, and I'm actually running the monitor board for him. And he's like... Hey boy, can you take a little bit of the mids out of my mix? And he's just going on while he's still playing, talking to his band. And then he said the funnest thing: yeah, you can take a little bit more. Don't make it sound like metal, boy. This grown folks music. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow. My first gig as a sound engineer, and I wasn't doing anything but patching the stage. And this will always be an honor to me. Little Richard at the Emerald Queen Casino. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget what he says. He comes up on stage before he go, walks out on stage. He's got like his, his people with him. He's got like his, his posse. And they're like, you ready, Dick? And he's like, ready? I'm going to be 70 years old next week, and I'm still pretty. <laughs> and he goes out on stage, and he freaking kills it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've gotten to do a lot of legends in the live sound. I mean, that, that, that could all be saved for whole other episode in the world of sound which is a whole horror story of itself but i know you wanted to talk about horror movies (laughs) well what does it feel like when you've been the lead singer of a band and then you're like doing sound for these lead singers what what perspective does that give you well you you see you get to see a, a lot of professional tips that's what I took out most of it. Took out most of it is like when you're like seeing a singer, you see what they do. And if it's like a singer that you actually respect and actually enjoy how they sing or what they're doing, you see what they do and what techniques they use to sing. Because being on stage and doing that for a long time, like over 30 minutes, is really hard. Especially if you want to like, you know, trying to keep your voice in shape. If you're actually trying to sing, you know, if you're actually trying to, you know, make a quality show, um, mm-hmm. depending on what genre you're on. I mean, I do a lot of metal bands and they, they're doing a quality show for what they do. And they have, everybody has these different techniques. Um, I learned the best technique and I still don't follow it is not to drink water. 
you want to drink yeah. water, but don't drink water while you're singing. That's it's mm-hmm. for if for somebody who's wanting to belt it out like I do, you know, I'm singing from the diaphragm. I guess water screws it all up, and I still still kind of fall victim to not doing that. Um, but more importantly, what I learned out <clears throat> over the years of doing sound and being a sound guy, but also being passionate about the idea of pursuing music and doing that for a living, you tend to get a little bitter and a little jealous because what happens is, is you realize you're working all day and you're just getting to watch somebody else come in constantly and do what you'd rather be doing. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like a passionate sound guy, which I wasn't. It's like a job that I fell into. It was exciting. I loved doing it to a point. Until I realized it's like, no, I, I want to be on stage. I want to be out front. That's what I want to do. I want to be the same. I don't want to be the guy behind the, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you know, because being a sound guy is really, really hard. That's, you know, that's, that is some of the hardest work I've done in my life. It's not just knowing how to make a band sound good on stage or in a venue. It's physically demanding and the hours are brutal you know you, you're working from yeah. six in the morning till two in the morning you know wow. sleeping for a few hours and then getting up and doing again when you're you know on tour or in the middle of a busy season it's it's pretty it's insane it's not for the faint of heart so i have a lot of a lot of respect for sound engineers and behind the scene folk especially now in these troubled times because none of them are working and yeah heart goes well, out to a lot of them we're going to move into our horror movie finale. Yeah. But, but before Finally. we do, I just want to give you one shot to tell us what albums formed you. I think the top three albums that formed who I am, in a nutshell, are Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare. Excellent. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band by the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar. Oh my God. Those, those really? are like my those are my Trinity. That's really my Trinity of albums that as far as a mixture of songwriting, energy, and wanted to do as a musician, when I listen to a day in the life by the Beatles to this day, Mm -hmm. it's, I want when, and I knew this at an, before I was 14, before I even picked up a guitar, I would just hum songs. I would just, I would, I didn't know how to play guitar yet, but I would put on a show in my room with a tennis racket. And that was my guitar. And I would hum along and rock out to songs like a day in the life. And in my mind, what I was thinking is like, someday I want to write a song that does something to somebody like what this song is doing to me right now. Wow. That's what I want. I want them to feel what I'm feeling right now. I want to write that song. And that goes for welcome to my nightmare. When I, you know, saw the show on VHS and saw Alice Cooper and that whole stage show was like, it blew my mind. And I was like, I want to do all of that. And then I saw Marilyn Manson on the antichrist superstar tour. 
in 1997, I think it was January at the is, Moore Theater. I think it was going to an end, but that was is one he of the that most... old? Oh God, he's been around since the early 90s. Oh he was God. a journalist, and he was on Trent Reznor's label. But I remember there was something really freaky about the guy. He was kind of like, you know, unbeknownst to me, he was kind of like a had this G.G. Allen kind of thing going on. But I actually picked up Antichrist Superstar when it first was released. I was in Hawaii. I was on one of my deployments, and it came out while I was in Hawaii. And that album didn't leave my CD player for about a year. I remember because I never heard anything like it. It just completely blew my mind. And then I saw him live, and I was just like, that's rock and roll. That is the best example of rock and roll I've ever seen. Do you think? Up to that point. That he is not acknowledged for his musicianship because of the controversy? No, I think the controversy helps him. I've always said that if you if you got a a section of America that hates you to the mm-hmm. point that they're deploying people with bullhorns and banners, you have done something right. But do you think Marilyn Manson is acknowledged as a good musician the way you think he should be? Um, no, I think some people get it. I mean, the thing about Marilyn Manson, and it's not about, I don't think he does things just to shock people. I think he's like a true artist like Bowie or anybody in that vein who just constantly creates music and when he makes an album, it might not be like the last one. You might not get it. It might not be your thing, um, but he'll do another one and you'll hear something on there that you're like, absolutely. I get it. I like it. But there was his trilogy when he was firing on all cylinders. And I call that like the antichrist superstar, mechanical animals, Hollywood around that period, man, those albums were, were, were excellent. And every day the, they were just brilliant and the music and i think he had the right band at the time over over the years like in many bands you know people leave and there's you know you don't have the same musicianship and you're he's basically down to writing songs himself i think and he doesn't have like the prowess that he had back then but he's still pumping out really good art and that's what i've always known about him I can look past the controversy and I look past it back then. And I'm like, this isn't him just trying to freak people out. This guy's just, he's trying to create some, something, and, you know, it might be above me at the time. But I'm like, I get what this guy's doing. And the bottom line is it's energy. It's really awesome rock and roll, you know, and I've always been entertained by it. So, so when was know- the first time as a child you acknowledged horror movies. Well, like, what was the first horror movie to affect you, you know, as a kid? Probably the the edited version of The Exorcist. Okay. And that was probably when I was five, I want to say. I watched a lot. like 1990? 1980. Oh, my God. Okay. Around this period. No, I got it. Okay, I spoke too soon. The movie that had 
the most sentimental value. I mean, my favorite horror movie of all time is The Exorcist. But when I first watched The Exorcist, and for several years until I was 10, I could only find the version that was edited for television. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we we finally went to the video store and found the actual unedited version. And then (sighs) my life changed after that. Was that (laughs) the version where she walks up the stairs like a... Crab. Well, that version, I always thought my mom was bullshitting me about that because she said there is this scene when she saw it in the theaters as it, because she saw it in the theaters as it, um, when it first came out and she was, uh, 18, 17. Um, she would tell me about that spider walk scene and mm-hmm. I never could find it. I never could see pictures. Back then, you the internet, you know, you had like Fangoria magazine. And that was it. Yeah. You know, he didn't have really any way to find anything. And then they re-released that in 2000, I want to say. And I don't even think they advertised that that scene was in it, but I was watching it with my mom when it came out and that spider walk scene happened. And I was, I went, holy shit. Yeah. She was full of it, you know, but the longest time I just saw this edited for TV, you know, like, it wasn't like let jesus hurt you let jesus hurt you (laughs) that's so when you kind of came into your own was like in the 90s so did you like watch like people under the stairs what was like your when you kind of became a teenager your horror movies the thing with horror movies and i can honestly say that is a deeply ingrained love that happened when I was young, toddler, five, four. My mom probably wasn't being the best mother in the world, but I remember one night she woke me up at one o'clock in the morning and I was probably seven. And she made us ham and cheese sandwiches and we had these high C orange drinks and we watched uh-huh. an American Werewolf in London at one o'clock in the morning. Oh, Nice. Something about that whole experience with my mom. It was late. It was past bedtime, so it was like this taboo thing. And and it was an American World in London, which was one of the greatest movies ever made, in my opinion. Um, right with David Naughton. David Naughton and Griffin Dunn and Jenny yeah. Agut. Um, I want to say that, that was the first one that really had a. It was like okay, I'm into horror movies. And yeah. then I remember it was, I remember when I was at the video store, I would go to the video store when I was eight and rent movies and they would let me rent the R rated movies. And I remember the first time I, my dad, I was going to pick out some cheesy horror movie called um, the Gorgon. <laughs> my dad said, no, why don't we check this one out? I heard this was really good. And it was called A Nightmare on Elm Street. And oh I didn't God. know anything about it. I was seven years you old. Were like, you were like nothing. You are a kid. Yeah, I was seven years old. I was seven years old. And I want, all I saw was a picture of Medusa. And it was this movie called The Gorgon. And I remember reaching for that. I go, we need to rent this. And my dad said, no, I've, I've heard really good things about Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, this is 1984. And... <laughs> No, you don't know anything. You just pick up a movie and go, okay, let's see what happens. And I couldn't sleep for a month after that. That movie fucked my head up. I was like, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I was like, what? The music in that movie was so scary. 
Robert England was creepy. I mean, after that, it became the franchise, and and I and I I love every one of those movies for different reasons. But that first one gave me a feeling that I've I rarely feel anymore, like with fear. You know, it's just like it's like when Robert England's hands, his arms got really big when they extended. Remember that scene? And yeah. you know, the, the and blades on his hands and his it was like arms extended. That was that freaked me out. But no, I think what really scared me was the way the yeah, that scene in the alley will always stick with me, but it's more of what the foreplay to that scene when she's mm-hmm. just walking around when Tina is just walking around at night and it's dark and you just keep hearing that Tina that that fucked with me. <laughs> I don't know what it was about that. And then the gruesome way that she winded up dying. And when yeah. Nancy is visited in the school and she's in a body bag, these are all just visuals that, you know, today's standards, you're not supposed to let kids see. And it just, it did a number on me just downloading all that haunting imagery onto my pristine hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, since Nightmare then, was- you know, as an adult, you're able to see more of the horror classics. So what other horror movies, you know, made an impact on you? God, I've didn't, you know, it's like I've 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 gone through so many different phases with horror movies and I watch every year at certain periods of the year, I religiously watch a lot of the franchises. Like I like watching Jaws around Fourth of July because mm-hmm. it's life. I like watching Friday the Thirteenth in the summer because it's summer camp, and I do. I religiously watch every one of these movies every year, and I don't know what I get out of it. I I like to quiz myself. I like to. The thing is, is in all those movies, some of them are really bad. But I, I see something new that I haven't seen before. You discover new stuff. But the original Friday the 13th was actually really well done for mm-hmm. what it was. The Halloween movies, the original Halloween is mm-hmm. a force to be reckoned with. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like to see that when it first came out. And then those yeah. were great and kind of slasher. What were yeah. the horror movies with more of a mask more of a monster more of you know what was what was the dead vampires inspiration um like phantom of the paradise or yeah i would probably go phantom of the paradise you know just that whole whole rock opera aspect Mm -hmm. maybe if you could remember the movie trick or treat Oh yeah, and it had Skippy from Family Ties and Ozzy, you know. But Phantom of the Paradise had a major impact on me. Brian De Palma, that was a, it was a rock opera, and it dives into the, and it dives into something very important in that movie that I've always been fascinated by, and that's the history of rock and roll. The band that plays throughout that movie is the juicy fruits and they transform into all these different versions of rock and rolls through this through the through the years you know they go from the 50s car crash songs to the surf rock to the shock rock 
they go through all those different things and the, those are that the history of rock and roll is always something to me that I, I i i love and i constantly am trying to learn more about but phantom of the phantom of the paradise that definitely uh was one of the big ones. Um, movies that scared the hell out of me that didn't have anything to do with it. I remember the original Pet Cemetery. I don't I know. I love was, that. I love that uh, movie. I remember I was 13 when I saw that. So I'm, you know, I'm not a kid anymore, but I am. But that movie had a lot of disturbing images in it. And the music at the beginning, I think it's Alan's... Goldberg who does the score Goldman um, I don't know um, or how about the Ramones oh yeah you had Ramones yeah and that turned me on to my uh, which I think is one of the greatest I don't American I get buried in a pet cemetery but no that movie had a lot of frightening visuals um, a lot of things that scared the hell out of me I never seen a kid get killed on screen except in like Pumpkinhead you know and the devastating Don't you think effect the original was so much better than the remake? I do. I don't think the original, I, I don't know. There was something that didn't translate because I know the original didn't get mind-blowing reviews, but that original, and it even, it even spawned a sequel that I'm sure Stephen King has disowned. But I still, I don't know. I like that whole Pet Cemetery universe that Mary Stephen, Lambert. Stephen King cash the paycheck. What's that? Stephen King cash the paycheck. Oh, he did. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he 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 bitched and moaned about his movie all the way to the pink. Um, there's a lot of great Stephen King films that have been um, that have been adapted. And I'm real. It's it's a shame, and I'm sure it was just a time. But one of my probably my third favorite movie of all time is The Shining. And I just spent the evening last month at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, where that movie was basically conceived. Um, the Shining. It's a modern horror masterpiece, and that movie's been with me my entire life. It's one of the creepiest movies i've seen have you shared that with your son yes i remember um i had a moment in my life when uh this was about years so he was about 10 me and my uh ex-wife we always agreed that we wouldn't let my son watch horror movies until he was 10 and when he was 10 he had kind of he was kind of he didn't want to watch horror movies it was weird he, he was kind of like, he was fascinated by him at first, and then he never really wanted to watch him. And it took him a while to really get into the swing of it because one night I was cooking dinner and he wanted dining. And I put it on and I said, sure, yeah, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. This is Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick was a photographer before. You know, I always give him the long history lesson of everything I watched before. He's like, just play the movie, Dad. Um, and it got to the scene with the woman in the bathtub. And I was in the kitchen, and I was just watching him from the living room because I knew it was going to have an effect on him. But as soon as I heard that laugh and that, <laughs> I looked over, and he had his face buried in his hands. 
and he has never been able to get that scene out of his mind. It still haunts him to this day. It's weird. That woman fucked his day up. What are the scenes you saw in horror movies that you can't get out of your head? Uh, there's a scene, one of the most haunting scenes that at times keeps me up at night. Um, it's from The Exorcist. And it's when the priest, it's when Father Karras is leaving the McNeil residence. And he asks Chris, he's like, did Reagan know that someone was coming over tonight? And Chris is like, well, no, no. Did she know that I was, did she know, or no, did no, she, he asks if, Ray, if, if she knew that his mother had just recently passed away. And Chris goes, well, no. And, and he's like, no, did your daughter know that my mother just recently passed away? And Chris McNeil goes, no, there's no reason she would know that. And he's like, it doesn't matter. Good night. And that's at that moment, you can see in his face, he knows that he is not dealing with something from this earth. And he walks away from the residence and the detective is out on the street, like casing the place. And he looks up in the room where he looks up in Reagan's bedroom and he just sees a shadow of a little girl hovering across the window. That silhouette, that scene haunts me for so many reasons because not only is it creepy, but it, it, it makes that movie even scarier in the sense that that's on a regular street in a regular town. And that is what's going on up in that room. I don't know. There's just a weight to that that has always really, really creeped me out. And then just recently, uh, Hereditary. I saw Hereditary. That director, man, he knows how to get inside your head, man. <laughs> Because he put a couple of scenes and, yeah, the hereditary. I don't want to do any spoilers, but God, there's a few scenes in that. He captures the he captures the emotion of grief all too well. Have you seen Hereditary? No, but for people who don't like horror or don't understand it or don't expose themselves what would be your advice to say why they should expose themselves to horror because i think it does have value to people yeah it's um i think uh the thing with horror every it's it's like we were talking about the why does the good girl always go for the bad boy you know there's that taboo there and that's what horror movies are. They, depending on what the horror movie is, it, maybe some people just look at it as you know, maybe it's just too fake for them. It's like this isn't reality. You know, there's not a serial killer out there with a hockey mask. Where people like me, we like the novelty of that. I like the, I like the, I like the uh, experience I've had. 
you know, with Jason and Freddy Krueger throughout my life. It's the sentimental value attached to those characters and my childhood. And even now as a grown man, there's, it's just, it's more interesting to me than someone who may not have experienced a horror movie at that precise window in their life. I think there's always like this window where if you experience certain music, certain movies, it has an effect on you at that certain time in your life that will not, it won't have the same effect if you were like 10 years older, or 10 years younger. It's just, you got to experience it at that window. And I think for a lot of people, <clears throat> they weren't really turned on to horror movies. It just, maybe their parents didn't let them watch it. Maybe they just never found anything interesting about them and it just doesn't have it. But what I like are the movies that really can dig into your soul and find what really scares you. And it when it when it when you can find what really scares someone and it goes back to what i was talking about with music when you write a song that actually moves someone you know and it's not a fake like oh that was a good song man no when you've like hit a nerve with somebody whether it's with your music or horror movies that's powerful you know I, and I, maybe some people are afraid of experiencing that. Maybe people don't like, there's people that do not want to be scared. They don't like that anxiety. They don't like that feeling it gets. I'm fascinated by the psychology of why this movie, which I know is made by producers and directors and screenwriters and actors. But once it's all assembled, I have this experience that scares the living shit out of me. And it still does today. You know, it still as a grown guy, I'll, I'll, I can watch something and it'll freak me out. Like I just mentioned the movie uh, Hereditary, Midsummer. This there's this new director and he's really tapping into a really scary place that I haven't seen in movies for the past two decades. You know, you had the torture porn movies for a while that were really hot. You had the decade where they were rebooting all my beloved classics, <clears throat> you know. They rebooted Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. They rebooted like every 80s slasher movie. But I was paying money to see every damn one of them. And then you kind of went into that, you know, uh, it kind of went into a really weird area where it was like movies like uh, High Tension and uh, The Descent. You know, it was a little bit more sophisticated. But filmmaking today, they're really doing a thing where they can go deep and scare the hell out of you and not show gore. They don't have to show gore. They don't have to show violence. Even they just tap into a, a weird nerve that scares the hell out of you. And I don't know how they do it, but it's, I'm always experienced. So my advice is just like, give it a shot, but some people just aren't interested. Like I say, people have the attention spans of goldfish and <laughs> it's hard to get them to steer on something that they'd be interested in. You know, it's like, I think most people would rather watch Dr. Phil, you know, <laughs> I don't know what people do. I, I, I sit here every Halloween and I go through all the universal classic horror movies, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, the wolf man, invisible man. I watch those and those are amazing. I like to try and imagine what it would be like to be in 1933 and go to the theater and see Dracula. What would that have been like? If I was, you know, what made it so scary then? What would it be like to be in 1969 and you and your your buddy from the military or, you know, have a couple of days off 
and you walk by a movie theater and you see Night of the Living Dead. Hmm, what, I wonder what that's like. You know, you don't have the internet. You don't have anything to tell you. You're just like walking around going, hey, you want to go see Night of the Living Dead? That sounds cool. And then you go in there and it completely fucks your head up because you've never seen anything like that. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the story from somebody who saw Night of the Living Dead the first time when it first came out. Everybody was traumatized. As an aside, are you a foodie? Uh, somewhat. What's your you know what? go-to? No. What's your go-to dinner when you're trying to impress the first date? Chicken parmesan. Are you Italian? I like home steak. No, no, you know, yeah, that was like the one thing I liked. I like going to a nice Italian place and getting the chicken parmesan. Uh, these days, I'm a steak guy, man. I go go to the best steakhouse I can find and it's it's just a carnivorous experience. And, and if a girl is a vegan, up. is that a deal killer? Uh no, I'm just going to say well you're going to be bored a lot watching me eat like a bear at the dump. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh, we're going to go into our final stretch here. Three final questions for you. Three. And we'll wrap it up. But this first one is a really important question. Okay. I'll try not to go off track. What is your favorite horror movie of all time and why? Favorite movie, horror movie of all time would be the 1973 classic directed by William Friedkin, The Exorcist. Please elaborate. It is my favorite movie due to the time it was made. The 70s, I think, is one of the greatest decades for filmmaking. Um, that movie, I, that movie to this day holds up. It's almost 50 years old. It's a 50, almost 50-year-old 50 movie, and, and it still scares me. That I don't know what creates power like that when you make a movie like that. I don't know if it's because it's been with me my whole life. But when I hear the first tones, <clears throat> when I start the movie, you see the Warner Brothers print. Um, and I hear the first sounds. I get a chill that goes. I still I get that freaked out anxiety because I'm about ready. And I've seen The Exorcist over 100 times, probably more. And it's still really scares but it's not even just the scariness of it it's just how everything is orchestrated through that movie the music that they use it's very subtle but when they do it it's right it it, it needs to be there and the acting is superb everything about that film is what makes a perfect horror movie for me because it goes I love all horror movies. I love the classic horror movies. I love the Hammer films. I love the slashers of the 80s. I like the more sophisticated 90s horror movies. I love the reboots. But that movie taps into something that none of those other movies can tap into. I don't know what it is. If, if it was a sex partner, it was the one that gave me the best orgasm I'd ever have in my life. And ever will. So what is your favorite rock band of all time and why the beatles 
the Beatles are my favorite rock band because their music throughout all their albums, throughout everything they've done, has created more sentimental value to me. More, it ha- I have more just good memories and just good um, stuff tied to them because they were truly like the genesis of me wanting to be a songwriter. And everything they've done is different. They were doing things that were even dreamed of when they were, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be the Beatles in the late sixties. I, I, I can only fantasize what that would be like, but that music uh, holds a lot of, a lot of weight for me past all the metal, all the horror rock, all the shock rock. It, it all go, comes down to one. It's like, you think of all these movies that are made or rock bands are made and where they all come from, but it comes down to one band for me. And the Beatles, I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing now if it wasn't for them. And they're my favorite rock band of all time. And I, I call the Beatles a rock band. You've had all these influences. You've got to exercise your own artistic abilities in bands. And you're actually not too old. So you got maybe, what, 30, 40 good years left in your life. How would you like to spend those years expressing yourself creatively? I want to fall in love with making music again. Um, I've had a long break from it. Like I said, I've spent the last couple of years doing tribute bands and having a lot of fun doing music but you know i mentioned you know it's fun being in a tribute band and playing in front of a crowd as opposed to when you play your original music and you're playing in front of five people but i remember a time and i think it was around the time when i was in dead vampires when i was madly in love with making music and I I couldn't write enough songs. And I don't know what I was tapped into at the time, but I desperately wanted to tap into that again. And I've been trying for years. You know, you get older, you get more responsibilities. You know, you got to pay the bills. You do different things. But there's nothing like writing a song. There's nothing like that moment. <clears throat> I've written like maybe 60 songs in my life. And I'll say five of them are really, really good. And when I'm in this living room and I finish that song and it's just me in here and I finish that one special song, (laughs) I've done a lot of drugs in my life. I've, you know, I've skydived. I've done a lot of, a lot of fun stuff, but nothing matches that feeling of when you finish a song that, you're in love with you know and you just hear it you haven't played it for anybody yet you're just in that moment with yourself and i desperately desperately want to do that again when's the last time you wrote a song i write songs all the time i just don't really promote them anymore i've got they come in spurts you know i'm not here playing my guitar every day but I've gotten about like 10 songs that nobody's heard, you know, and 
maybe two of them are really, really, really good. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, just going to that next level. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into, you know, the process of recording a song. You know, I need to get to a point where I'm not concerned with who's listening or who's going to like it or what. I just need to do it but just to do it for me because you get kind of let down, you know, you don't, you put all this effort into something and this isn't just me. This is a lot of my bandmates, colleagues, and friends, you know, you put your heart and soul into something and you throw it out in the world. And it's like you mentioned, it's instantly forgotten. And then you're just kind of like, okay, well now what? It's kind of like getting a picture with the, uh, the celebrity at the Comic-Con. You know, you put all, all this effort into it. You wait in line. You pay a lot of money. Oh, shit. There he is. He's there. Snap. Instantly forgotten. Do you feel some it. sentimentality with dead vampires now? What's that? Do you feel some sentimentality with dead vampires? Oh, very much. That was one of the most, that was one of the most special times of my life. I truly it is in the highlight of my life, you know, one of the high points, you know, it's, I've never been more creative. I don't know that I've ever had much more fun. I'm not going to lie. It was also a hell. It was also a hard time. You, you learn about, you know, things happen in a band. You guys are all like aspiring to do something great and everybody goes in different directions and a lot of weird things things happen along that road and it gets it gets weird and uncomfortable but you just keep plugging away and those moments that i had on stage they're they're priceless like i'll, I'll never get to experience that again you know that that was one of the greatest times of my life i remember at matt's funeral you know i'd been there all day we'd met all the you know we'd spent time with family friends just all these people over the years that we we were in this silly little band together and, you know, we were leaving the, the funeral parlor and Spanky looked at me. We both had tears in our eyes and he's, he's like, this was truly the best time of our life. And you know, right. for people who are 20 or 30 and think life ends at 30, you know, you've got a lot of life left in you. Do you think your most creative times are ahead of you? I hope so. I know I have it in me. It's just a matter of me getting over caring who wants to listen to it and just doing it. That's all it takes. And and if you kind of sum up everything in your creative life, you know, what's the theme of your music and your creative output? I think the theme of it at all it's you know <laughs> it all comes from love for me it, it's all just it all might it might be disguised in a dracula cape or something you know if i'm talking about frankenstein i'm talking about a monster i've created if i'm talking about dracula i'm probably talking about something that's sucking the life out of me but it all generally falls back into me just like a unrequited love <laughs> that's where it all i like writing love songs i like writing sweet little 
songs because that to me has always been one of the most powerful emotions is when you genuinely love someone you know aside from being scared you know from like a horror movie or something that or just life in general that that anxiety you feel like oh am i going to get fired from my job today or what am i going to come home to tonight or you know stupid shit like that but love is always has always been kind of at the root of it all and that's probably why the beatles are one of my favorite bands it's you know that's you know they got all kinds of different types of music different types of songs but you know there's this essence of love underneath it all and i'm i'm, I'm i believe in that i you know i'm it's always really been a big ingredient to any song I write, whether it's like a love for my life or a love for another human being or a love for my son, a love for my girlfriend or my ex-wife, anything. It could be anything, but it's the most powerful ingredient that I've always had, and I've kind of stuck to it. In the end... You know, people think you're in a band, you have groupies, and, you know, it's like you're, uh, who are these 80s rock bands, you know? Motley Crue. Motley Crue with girls throwing themselves at you. But in the end, when you're in a band, isn't it much more about your solidarity with the other guys in the band? It is, and you lose, and it's really easy to lose track of that, um, because girls do. It's part of the program, just like drugs and sex. All of that is part of the program. When you enter the world of rock and roll, or you want to enter the world, you may think that women are throwing themselves at you, but they might not. But those things are all distractions. It is about the solidarity of the band and what you're creating because it feels good when you're singing to a girl, you know, and they're singing your song back. They're singing your song back to you. They're singing lyrics you wrote back to you. That's a pretty good feeling. But at the end of the day, all that kind of just gets in the way. <clears throat> and that's what kind of, that's what kind of, you know, breaks a lot of bands up. You got to be in a band. Uh, if you want a band to be successful, if there's anybody in their younger stages that are listening to this, I would say if you're in a band with five people and four of you want to be rock stars and one guy is just doing it to have fun, you need to get rid of the guy who's just there to have fun. Because being a rock star a lot of the time isn't fun or trying to be one, I should say. There's days where it could be further from fun. And it goes vice versa. If you're in a band with four guys that are just trying to have a good time, write music and just have a laugh, but you got one guy in there that's trying to be a rock star, you need to get rid of that rock star pronto and get another guy in there that wants to have fun. And everybody will be happy. Once you put that one element in there, it gets kind of ugly. Doc, do you want to have fun or do you want to be a rock star? These days, I just want to have fun. I want to have fun until the day 
day I die. If I could have fun being a rock star, oh God, that'd be great. But I think that that I I think that boat sailed. I'm just I am perfectly okay with having fun. And you know what? I do have fun. I do. Sincerely. You've shared very candid experiences. And I want to give you the last word. No agenda. No uh, parameters. Just to say out there to potential fans, potential rock stars, you know, at this stage in your life, what what's the big pearl of wisdom you can share with people that, you know, has real meaning to you? Put your love into the ones that put their love into you. That was one of my lyrics in Desert Bride. You put all your love in the ones that ignore you and you slam the door on the one that adored you. And that's kind of the mantra in my life now. It's like I think a lot of people spend all this time trying to impress people that their art or anything that they're trying to do, the running theme in this conversation, they, they, they put all this effort into people that unfortunately what you're trying to impress them with is instantly forgotten. But somebody is actually paying attention to you. And that's the one that you need to shower with your art, your love, whatever. Your yeah, <laughs> pay attention. Put your love in the ones that put their love into you, and slam the door on those other guys. Because at the end of the day, that's where your regrets are. Is like you think about all those people that were there singing your songs, or they were there supporting you, and unfortunately, a lot of the time, those are the ones we ignore. And we're putting all our effort into trying to impress this other entity. And you're ignoring your number one fan. And so if there's any advice I have is focus on that number one fan. They're the reason you're doing it. Have you found love in your life? Yes. I am madly in love with my girlfriend. We've been together for 10 years. She is the muse behind my song, 21st Century Fox. And we have been through hell together, but we've been holding each other's hand every step of the way. And, you know, we're, we're very happy together now. Um, yeah, Lana's, you know, she's, she's like, uh, she's my Pamela and to my Jim Morrison. You know, she's that. She's that, uh, I do, I don't, I can't imagine my life without her. And then, you know, like I've mentioned the love for my son, you know, there's no love I'll ever have for anything like the love I have for him. And my whole mission in life is to make sure that he has a happy one. You know, I want him to be, I want him to have a good life. I don't want him to have like a negative attitude or fall into the same crap that I did. Cause at the end of the day, it's all a waste of time and potentially dangerous. So I want to be there for him and make sure that he goes to this life grinning like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, for people who want to know more about you and your creative life, is there a way they can, 
you know, seek you out online? Um, there, the music, everything I've ever written and recorded is all available on dalefall.bandcamp.com. And if you want to know anything about my life, you can find me on Facebook and send me a message. <laughs> I'm very easily accessible. <laughs> I like that. Okay, last question. Almond Brothers or Leonard Skinnerd? Oh, that's a rough one. Almond Brothers. Absolutely. No question. Come on. Almond Brothers, of course. Post, their song Whipping Post to me is more valuable than the entire Leonard Skinner collection. So, <laughs> that's just a personal opinion. Well, <laughs> but anyways, I, uh, yeah, I hope that uh, you, you got everything and more that you wanted from this interesting little journey into my psyche. I think I could take the next 50 years psychoanalyzing you, uh, Doc. <laughs> but no, you know, you know well, this is, this buy is the ticket, take ride. Sliver. I, I see this as a, a sliver of your life. Okay? It is. You're a multifaceted man. You obviously, I just want to think that you got a lot of creativity left. That you're going to act upon for the rest of your life. I definitely plan on doing that and hope so. Maybe maybe some acting. I would love to be an, an actor. That's the one thing I've ignored. You know, I was just talking about, you know, you, you, you know, you put all your energy into that th entity that's um, <laughs> not really paying you off when really you're ignoring your number one fan. And you know what? maybe things would be a lot different if because acting has always been that, that other thing that I've always wanted to do. I, I just didn't have the guts to move to Hollywood and pursue it head on. I, I That is the main reason I chose music because it was more convenient. And I was like, I, I'm in Seattle. I live here. I don't have to move because it would, it would have been one or the other. I would have loved to have pursued acting. I would have. I was in play production. I was a drama nerd. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very theatrical, as you know. And uh, I would have loved to have pursued that, but things might be way different now. I don't know how, but. But you take direction well. Yeah, yeah. As long as it doesn't involve me uh, putting a penis in my mouth. <laughs> Not that I have anything against that. Oh, well, you left me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> I think, though, with you, sometimes we don't realize our strengths, and you have a natural, kind of, you're very natural on camera, because I've seen you on camera, and you have this natural ability to just relax and ease into a role. Yeah, I would love and to be. And it does not involve gay porn. <laughs> yeah, that 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 that's always been my biggest fear is if I ever took like a acting gig like via a Craigslist ad, <laughs> and you wind up in some, um, you're in just some room, you know, you're there, you're ready to, you know, just really give it your all, and then 
they're just staring at you and they're like, okay, this is the time when you get undressed. <laughs> you're like, okay. I think the rule of thumb is <laughs> don't take a roll over Craigslist. Yeah, exactly. Don't do that. Although, although, but no, I, I, <laughs> although I will say that's probably where I've gotten some of my best actors, but well, I got, I, I like how I wound up in your, um, in uh, the Mephisto box, I, <laughs> I you were amazing. I showed up in a, you know, just I I thought I was doing a dead vampires interview, and you're just like, okay, so here's your role, and here's your wig. And, the <laughs> and I'm up on the top of the Rainier uh, Brewery. The Rainier Brewery in 28 degree weather. Yes, it was free. Freezing cold, but freezing. I love that. I love that memory. That that was. I I hold that memory dear. That was a very cool day. That's Just the whole everything. Day. Yeah, I love that day, and I think that's what's fun about filmmaking. That you know, I haven't been on a lot of film sets, or you know, I, I've not really been in that world. But I think that that would be the more exciting thing about making a movie, other mm. than what may potentially come after it's finished um, is those experiences you find yourself in making a movie. I used to make movies in high school. I used to direct all my friends at the weird hours and make these little horror movies. And the, in like you documented in hush, hush, sweet uh, uh, hush, hush, Nellie Olson, the cops get called. <laughs> I had the cops called on me. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's amazing. You know, you're just making a little movie. And you and turn around and there's cops. Yeah. And it's like, you can't write that into a movie. <laughs> One of my favorite but, but documentaries is we working on top of the Rainier Tower. And it was like 28 degrees. Uh-huh. Kind of like the show must go on. And even though like yeah. your body is shutting down because you're so damn cold. You just got to get the footage. Right. And, and I think that uh, discipline, old. whether it's music, a band, showing up for a gig, making a movie, a true artist, they're like come, you know, close to death to get their footage. Yes, they will. And that's, yeah, I've, I've done that. I've gotten, I've gotten shocked on stage and through all kinds of pains and things to get make sure that you get through the show the show must go on you can't stop there's no crying in baseball you know it's you you're there it, I, I totally get that and i honestly think that energy i i, I hold I, I would do well as an actor I, I i would totally maybe i maybe i could be one of those actors that started late like one of those older actors that got started way late in the game i don't know that might be my calling i because i love film god knows i love it but the one thing i think i love most about film is it's a world that i haven't explored the behind the scenes really it's like in the music business i've been a live sound guy i've seen the wizard behind the curtain you know i've i've been to the circus movies still have that magic to me you know they it's still have that like a Cirque du Soleil thing. There's just something yeah. about taking a physical risk. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah. And then I have a lot of admiration for people who take a risk for their art, whether it's physical, mental, intellectual. Because let's face it, you know, we're all armchair quarterbacks. All these people online judging other people, you know, they none of them have the balls to actually put themselves on the line and do something creative. Yeah. I mean, who could do a lot? And, and that's one thing. I mean, dead vampires who on this planet yeah, who, could duplicate that, you know? Yeah. Who could do that? Who could get five guys in a room, grown men dressing up in Halloween costumes, Costumes, prosthetics, makeup, fucking up there and truly put a rock and roll performance to the best of our ability in the sleaziest of conditions. Not oh my god! Do that. Like it's a four by five foot stage, the size yeah. of a postage stamp. Exactly, and you have, have you know, you you have in the crowd that love it. You have people there that can't stand looking at you. I mean, that's the good thing. That's what I always tell about a lot of people about bands is when you're in a band, because everybody obviously wants to be loved or they'd want to be hated or whatever. It's, it's like, it's like if everybody loves you, you're doing something. I go, if, if everybody loves you, you're doing something wrong. If everybody hates you, you're doing something wrong. You got to find that happy medium. If people, if you've got a fan base, but there's people that just can't stand you, you are on the right track. I think it's the yin and the yang. I think you have to have that balance. It's when people don't give a shit. And I, this is, it's, it's the reference I have is because people say, man, I got too many haters or there's all my, my haters you want that you want to have those because if you hate somebody they're 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 you are on their mind they're yeah. thinking about you so you've made an impact and i think you, that's you always important. want to keep when you have a people that can, you know do you always want to keep a little punk rock in whatever you do absolutely i like and punk rock is i don't necessarily think it's music I, I punk rock is an attitude and i hold on to it very dearly to this day and it's just a basically don't take shit from no one attitude you know i i work in the blue you know and you work around people that are from way different walks of life that i find very interesting um, you know i work around a bunch of Larry the Cable. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And, you know, I like having that attitude. I like having that a- attitude like, you know, what the fuck up with this guy? You know, that, yeah. that, that's a, I like having that attitude. I also like getting people I don't think you're supposed to get along with. Do you so think you'll ever put out another uh, solo CD? Oh, yeah. I absolutely think think i'll do that i don't know when but i know i have the music in me um i like the idea of putting out a single i think like i've mentioned i don't think people have the attention span anymore to handle more than a couple of songs i'm writing two songs and 
you can do like an A and a B side, like the old days. You yeah. know, whereas instead of like vomiting 14 new songs, um, I, I don't know anybody in the world that I could give 14 songs to and they would honestly listen to it from beginning to end. People have the attention span for a song, maybe two. And I mean, that first song that you share, it's got to be amazing in the first, you, you have to have something going on in the first five seconds. Because if something doesn't hold their interest, they're going to be staring at their phone. I don't know why I'm really good at this, but I actually forgot to hit record once. <laughs> I did like a two-hour interview and it was lost. <laughs> That's really pathetic. Those are my, I, I hate to say this, but in the uh, medium of any like entertainment or recording or anything, I've always, I've never gotten tired of the story where somebody didn't hit the record button and that magic is gone. <laughs> oh my God. And, and I should have come clean with the person and I just kind of had this convoluted story and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. What, what are these even? What, what do you call this data when it's like a digital audio recording? I call it oral air pudding. <laughs> <laughs> What's that thing in Terminator, the big massive corporation that controls everything? Skynet. So this is just, we're basically a pawn of Skynet. That's all we are, man. It's just all going into Skynet's database so that the droids can take us over. And then one day when we realize that there's something mirroring us in everything that we do and say, and uh, we're going to wonder why. And it's, oh, wait, no, that already happens on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. There's a microphone oh. on our devices that hears everything we say. We're How really they... stupid, aren't we? Yeah. Well, you know, why not? Just give a, you know how I think that was one of my uh, favorite lines in the movie Ghost World was just give people a Big Mac and a pair of Nikes and they're happy. <laughs> oh, I love that. We talked about that on my podcast about Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he's. I love him in that film. If you acted in something, could you be a villain? I would yeah. relish in it. I would chew the scenery. I could yeah. easily be be the bad guy i'm gonna ponder i could be that. very evil and cruel or explore things that you think are cruel yeah it's like how far can you take this how far are you because the thing that i think as actors what i'm what i'm what i think they go through is i mean we all feel these feelings and you go to a certain place where you're like okay that's not who i am you know, this is, you know, that feeling is definitely something I'm not comfortable with because I don't feel that. But being an actor and this is your role, you have to bypass that and take it as far as you can. How cruel and evil can you be? You know, what kind? Yeah, that, that's acting. That's what that is. It's not like, oh, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> be like the, you know, be like. Oh, I'm the evil. I'm like the Joker in the sixty, uh, in the nineteen sixties Batman TV series. I'm conducting jolly capers around Gotham, and they're kind of fun. But I'm evil, and I'm a prankster. No, what if you're really like the Joker? 
But for your true <laughs> final, speaking directly to people, we've gone through 2020 with COVID-19, quarantines, and whatnot. And I just want you to share with everyone, and this is our true finale. We're going to wrap up here. Give everyone a little bit of hope, but also like, you know, say, don't panic. You know, use this time to do this. How should we use COVID time to kind of build ourselves up and maybe explore our creative lives? Everybody has different circumstances that they're stuck in through this very challenging year. Um, I've seen friends that were very successful um, in their trade um, suffer all year. They, they, they don't have a job, and they're not going to have one anytime soon. Uh, I've seen a lot of horror stories over the last nine months. I've seen people turn into absolute monsters based on the fear of what we're all experiencing here. Um, like I said, we all are in different situations. You know, my, what I would suggest is, you know, you got to go to the places that aren't negative for me. You know, I've had some time off the last couple of months. I've been fortunate to work all year and I'll, <clears throat> I've had two months off and I've been fortunate enough to still quarantine. And, you know, I live in a part of the world up here in the state of Washington that I haven't really explored. And that's all I've spent my time doing is out hiking in the mountains. And, and I'm not a hiker. I, I've never done that in my life. And you get your head straight out there when you get away from your phone and the social media and all the shit. When you just go out in the middle of nowhere and you just cruise nature, um, that has completely helped me. Some people <coughs> don't leave the house. Um, that's your, that, that, that's, then you, you have no excuse not to be creative. That's something that I should be doing. I have, you know, had a couple of days here where I haven't had anywhere to go. And that was my opportunity to, you know, construct some new music, you know, but I have chosen to do things that I haven't done before in my life. And I think that's if people bypass, you know, if they can get out of their house, if they have the means, then yeah, this is the time to, you know, Go explore places that you haven't gone to that are still safe or as safe as you allow it to be. I mean, a lot of it, I think, could be built up in people's mind as far as how scared they are to, I mean, this, I have never experienced anything like this in my life and nor has anybody else. But there's different levels of fear that everybody have attached to this. And I think a lot of it is tied to news and media. And I think the longer you, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong, obviously obviously with being informed, but I think it can get you to a point where you're basically scared to leave your own apartment. And I think that's a little extreme. So I would just say, don't let that. <laughs> Some people I'm sure are just tickled pink not to have to leave their apartment. <laughs> They're like, this is paradise. <laughs> but 
if anybody's getting that claustrophobic feeling like I do. Um, I've done, I go do things I've never done before, like hiking, you know, and it's, it's really simple, easy stuff. And that's the best thing I can do. Try to find salvation in uh, other avenues that you may not have explored in, until they, they uh, get this thing in some form under, under some form of control. Like I said, I've been fortunate. Everybody has a different situation. I've chosen not to spend a lot of time time watching the news you know social media all of that you, you got to put that stuff down and just really go out to where there's no noise and just <laughs> your own head and get that all straight and then you might figure out a way to deal with these troublesome times in a more positive way his name is dale fall i call him doc the FBI calls him Brian. He's the lead singer of Dead Vampires, featured in the upcoming documentary, Spanky Was a Punk Rocker. I thank you for being on the show, and I really expect some big things from you in this next Oprah chapter of your life. I expect big things from me, too, and thank you so much for having me on. This was awesome. Ha, <laughs> ha,